1: all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash offer.
2: Morning, everyone. Top of the hour, 6 a.m. here on the East Coast. So glad you're with us. Good morning.
3: Good morning. A
2: lot of news to get to. Let's start with the five things to know for this Wednesday, September 27th. Debate night in America, meaning it's going to be a late night for all of us, but the former president will not be on the debate stage, instead giving a primetime speech at a non-union auto parts manufacturer in Detroit.
4: That speech comes after a New York judge ruled the former president and his adult sons committed fraud by inflating the value of his assets. It's a decision that could have a big impact on the future of the Trump Organization. Also, breaking overnight, more than a dozen people are under arrest in Philadelphia after a big group of looters ransacked an Apple store, a Lululemon, and a Foot Locker in Philadelphia.
2: And the Senate moving forward with a plan to prevent a government shutdown. Three days, 18 hours to go in case you're counting. No guarantee, though, this thing can pass the
4: House. And the writer's block, the writer's strike, has ended. A writer's block to some degree. Hollywood writers can start working today, <laughs> again, after a nearly five-month strike scene. And this morning starts right now.
2: All right, here's where we begin happening today. Former President Trump goes to Michigan. He will not debate his Republican rivals in California. He will be looking to upstage them with his own primetime speech. He's going to speak at a plant outside of Detroit. It is non union, which is interesting. There'll be an audience of around 500 former or current union members, though. Here's what United Auto Workers President Sean Fain told our Wolf Blitzer last night.
5: I find a pathetic irony that the former president is going to hold a rally for union members at a non-union business and you know all you have to do is look at his track record i see no point in meeting with him because i don't think the man has any has any bit of care about what our workers stand for what the working class stands for he serves a billionaire class and that's what's wrong with this country
4: now, it was quite a contrast. Fain was with President Biden yesterday as Biden became the first sitting president to join a picket line. Fain reiterated and then Biden seemed to back up the call for significant pay raises from the big three automakers. CNN's Kristen Holmes is live for us in Michigan with more. Uh, this has been built up by the Trump team. Uh, the Biden team followed after this announcement was actually made. What do we expect to see today from the former president?
6: Well, I will tell you that the Trump team is not expecting as warm a welcome from union leaders, as you heard there from Sean Fain, but they are expected to be well received here in Macomb County. It's a county that he won by a significant margin, both in 2016 and 2020. And this is really the first clearest signal that we have seen that the Trump campaign is looking beyond the primary at the general election, particularly looking at the state of Michigan, giving the swing, uh, it's primetime address in this swing state to working class voters. And I'll remind you, Phil and Poppy, uh, that these are the voters and this is the state that helped carry him to the White House in 2016 and helped carry Biden to the White House in 2020. And now you're starting to see Trump trying to get back some of that working class vote that he had in 2016. Obviously, not going to be as easy this time around, particularly when you have those union leaders coming out slamming his administration's policies as pro-business. But they do believe they can drive a wedge between the union leadership and the rank and file members, which as you mentioned, some of them are going to be at this speech today. Now. Trump is not the only one looking ahead towards the general election. Biden is out with his first ad today, hitting Trump directly. And surprisingly, it's not just airing nationally, but specifically on television here in Michigan ahead of his visit.
7: He says he stands with auto workers, but as president, Donald Trump passed tax breaks for his rich friends while automakers shuttered their plants and Michigan lost manufacturing jobs. Joe Biden said he'd stand up for workers and he's delivering, passing laws that are increasing wages and creating good paying jobs. Manufacturing is coming back to Michigan.
6: I don't know if there is a more targeted ad than that. It is very clear the messaging that the Biden camp is sending right now. And I do want to mention one thing, Poppy, you brought up that this is a non-union shop. One of the things that we are going to hear from former President Trump is this talk about electric vehicles. He is trying to sell this as a loss for auto workers, saying it will take away jobs, it will take away manufacturing. And where we are now, Drake Enterprises, we heard from the president of this company yesterday, who is clearly on the same page, saying uh, in an interview that if electric Vehicles were to take over, he would be out of business.
2: That's interesting. Thank you for bringing that up, too. Kristen, thanks. We'll track this all day.
4: Well, from the political to the personal, personal finance, that is, a New York judge has ruled Donald Trump and his adult sons built their empire based on fraud, saying they are liable for inflating the value of Trump's assets for years. The judge cited multiple instances in which Trump's companies claimed their properties were worth far more than their assessed values, sometimes to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars adding that the defendant's claims none of that mattered legally came from a, quote, fantasy world, not the real world. The judge even quoting the famous Chico Marx line from the movie Duck Soup. I saw
8: you with my own eyes. Well, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes?
2: Judge apparently went with his own eyes and canceled the Trump Organization's business certificates that allow them to operate. That's a big deal. We'll get into why. That could end Trump's control over some of his key New York properties, like Trump Tower in Midtown Manhattan. Donald Trump's attorney called this ruling a miscarriage of justice, said the family will appeal. This is a major win for New York's Attorney General, Letitia James, in this civil case against Trump, which alleges that Trump inflated his net worth by as much as $2.2 billion in one year. That case still will go to trial where the AG will seek a penalty of $250 million. It's unclear if that trial, though, will start on Monday as previously planned.
4: Let's go ahead and bring in CNN political commentator and Spectrum News political anchor Errol Lewis, as well as former assistant U.S. attorney for the Southern District of New York, Sarah Chrisoff. Uh The duck soup reference didn't have it on my bingo card for this week. Feel better uh, because of it, particularly since you showed the sound. What was striking yesterday was when this all emerged, everybody's scrambling to figure out what on earth does this actually mean from a practical perspective? What does it mean?
9: Yeah, so the court granted summary judgment on partial suger- summary judgment for one of the attorney general's claims against oh. the former president and his uh, family. So that on that claim where and it was a particular claim where they don't have to prove intent or materiality of the statements is essentially a documents claim or the documents false and misleading and where they submitted in a pattern uh, to achieve this some result. Right. So it, it, we uh, then we're now proceeding with the rest of the trial, the rest of the claims the New York Attorney General has against Trump and his folks, and also the damages issue wasn't decided by the judge in this decision. You
2: know what's really interesting and ironic is the fact that the Trump legal team at the outset of this, when the case was brought, Errol, you're a lawyer too, had had asked for summary judgment on their behalf. They had said the merits aren't there, Judge. You should dismiss. You know, you should grant us summary judgment on all of this. Don't even let this go to trial. And in fact, the judge saw it not only the other way, but granting at least that partial bit of it. So what goes to trial now? What will be decided in the courtroom?
10: Well, they have a number of different claims about uh, different kinds of alleged fraud. And so the most important ones, the ones that have generated the headlines, are now settled. That will still leave certain kinds of cases where there was a genuine dispute of fact about whether or not there was fraud involved in some valuations. And so the, there's some core of the case that still is going to make it to trial, and and possibly very soon. What the judge, though, really was very, very emphatic about was that they were raising claims that had already been rebuffed by that same court. Didn't they find the case. for that? They all got fined uh, $7,500 each. It's a, it's, a, I mean, it's just absolutely scathing, sort of saying you should not, you cannot, you must not continue to raise these immaterial uh, 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 d- defenses when I've already told you that we're not going to hear those defenses, mm-hmm. when it's already gone up on appeal so that it, it had already been mm-hmm. almost fully litigated, short of the, the highest court in the state. Mm-hmm. I mean, this was done, and and they still brought it back. And so uh, that says something about, and the judge was very pointed about it, about uh, Trump's tactics mm-hmm. in trying to sort of just delay, just try to sort of spin it out, bring up the, the same issues again and again and again.
4: Judge really not having it. Errol, uh, it, our Caitlin Collins had Michael Cohen on last night, the president's former fixer, lawyer, uh, hatchet man, whatever you want to term him as. Uh, and, and put the legal stuff aside, I think we all view this, uh, the former president, through the political lens, which is incredibly difficult to puncture his support, how he kind of operates. But Cohen said this about this particular issue. Take a listen.
10: If you really want to get to Donald, the way to do it is through his bank book, not by saying, oh, he's a narcissistic sociopath or, you know, look at he's definitely not 6'3 and he's not 215 pounds. You go after the wallet. Once you start hitting that that bank book, that's what really gets to him.
4: There's some evidence of that over the course of the last several years. Do you think he has a point there? Oh, no,
10: absolutely. Look, first of all, this is real money. I mean, a quarter of a billion dollars is a lot, even for somebody who, you know, whatever his net worth is, uh, that's a lot of money. The the, the other part of it, though, is that, you know, when the, the, the case is resolved, he's going to be seen. And this, unlike some of these criminal cases that we keep talking about. We, we already have a partial answer on this. I don't think the public is fully sort of absorbing it. But when this case is all the way over, mm-hmm. he's going to be a candidate for president who was found to have committed civil fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and his businesses. That's not a comfortable place to be. And he's always said, oh, it doesn't matter. You know, I'm dealing with high flyers. You know, we this is how we play the game at this level. Uh, This judge, again, makes clear. It's like you can't say your triplex in Trump Tower is 30,000 square feet if it's actually 10,000 square feet. That's not okay. That's fraud.
2: And explain to people, if you could, Sarah, in the simplest terms, why it matters that he inflated, according to this judge and according to the AG's argument, these assets by so much. It gave him better deals. He got more favorable loans.
9: Yeah, there was a lot of benefits to him of inflating these assets. So both in in tax benefits and benefits with regard to the loans that he obtained. One of the arguments that Trump's team made was no one was hurt by this, right? I I paid my loans off. Uh, The banks actually made money. They weren't harmed by this. The judge says that doesn't matter. That's not relevant here. You can't you can't commit fraud and then say, well, no one was hurt. So it was OK for me to do this. Um, that was one of sort of Trump's arguments that the judge rejected outright. Uh, but that's really sort of the, the crux of those claims against him.
4: Can I just ask you one more quick one before we have to go? Um, it's against uh, related to the former president. And to his sons, Ivanka Trump was also in the business for a period of time. But this same judge, I think, dismissed her role in this. Um, why? What does that mean?
9: So there were statute of limitations issues with regard to the claims against Ivanka Trump. And so essentially, it was too late to bring those claims. The, the timing was off. I think she wasn't involved in the business at back. certain times. Yeah. Um, and so that they, they weren't allowed to bring the claims against her. OK. Errol, Sarah, thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you.
2: So three days left to avoid a government shutdown. The Senate has laid out a stopgap bill to fund the government through November. Big questions, though, about whether it stands a chance in the House.
4: And new overnight, more than a dozen arrests have been made in Philadelphia after mass looting there. We're going to bring you the very latest on the investigation. Stay with us. Madam Speaker, forgive me, but what the hell is going on around here? That's Massachusetts Democratic Congressman Jim McGovern. Speaking for all of us, to some degree, as we watch Congress careen toward a government shutdown, inching closer by the day, the hour, the minute, the second. Now just three days to go to pass a spending agreement. The Senate has brokered a bipartisan bill to keep the government open until mid-November. It includes $6.2 billion in aid for Ukraine. That, of course, at least according to House conservatives, makes it dead on arrival in the House. And that's where, in battle, Speaker Kevin McCarthy is still trying to wrangle his party and vowing to put his own short-term spending bill on the floor on Friday. GOP hardliners like Congressman Matt Gates are threatening to oust McCarthy as they would rather shut down the government than work with Democrats.
8: The one thing I agree with my Democrat colleagues on is that for the last eight months, this House has been poorly led, and we own that and we have to do something about it. And you know what? My Democrat colleagues will have an opportunity to do something about that too. And we will see if they bail out our failed speaker. CNN's
4: Lauren Fox joins us now. Fox, I think the thing that's striking to me is in a normal moment of the last decade of these fiscal wars, the off-ramp now exists, right? There's a bipartisan deal. It is backed by Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer. It is backed by the Republican and Democrat on the Appropriations Committee. And yet, it is not the answer here.
11: Well, it may be the answer, but it may not be the answer that is taken by House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And we should note that the Senate still has to get this out of their chamber. And that could be a heavy lift, potentially because you have senators like Rand Paul threatening to slow walk this process and reiterating that last night because there is $6.2 billion in additional funding for Ukraine. There's also $6 billion of disaster aid, but that is something that some conservatives may really throw a fit about on the Senate floor. And if they start to have this, you know, drag out, you potentially could have a situation where the Senate can't pass their bill until the weekend either. So there's a huge question mark around how quickly the Senate is going to be able to move, despite the fact that you're right. Yes, there is bipartisan support. They will eventually be able to get this out of the Senate, but it could take some time. Then, of course, the inevitable question looms, which is what will House Speaker Kevin McCarthy do? He is hoping that as pressure builds throughout the week for his members, some of those I'm never going to vote for a CR members will start to see the light, start to see that Republicans have to have a position and take him up on his offer to bring a Republican spending bill to the floor on Friday that would, in their case, be an answer to the Senate's bill. but. Again, that is a huge if because you still have more than four Republican members who are making very clear they are not a yes at this point on a short term spending bill. And they are saying that they will never be a yes on a short term spending bill. That is when McCarthy will have to make the decision. Will the Senate bill be the bill he puts on the floor and obviously he will probably have to make changes to it to try to show he's putting up a fight but again Phil so many unanswered questions at this point I know we're close to this Saturday deadline but there is just so much more that is going to play out over the next several days
4: yeah it just feels inevitable that a shutdown is coming the question at this point is how long Lauren Fox thanks so much
2: So this new overnight, large crowds of looters swarming and ransacking stores. This is in downtown Philadelphia. Watch. This was the moment they smashed their way into an Apple store. Police say a crowd of about 100 juveniles moved through the city targeting retail stores that sell high end goods, clothing, sneakers, wine and liquor. Even pharmacies were targeted
12: we're investigating that there was possibly a caravan of a, a number of different vehicles that were going from location to location. So it's very possible that we had a group that was just making their way through the city. But quite naturally, you have followers that people are going to see this and, and start to come out to it and, and think that they can have an opportunity to get something, you know, as well.
2: Danny Freeman joins us live in Philadelphia, police vowing to arrest more suspects. Good morning. What can you tell us?
12: Good morning, Poppy. That's right. Police are vowing to arrest more suspects. The acting commissioner calling last night's actions disgusting and making very clear that those who were looting last night were not protesters. They were opportunists. Looters descend onto Center City, Philadelphia last night, hitting several stores in the area, leaving a path of debris and destruction behind. According to police, the looting started at 7.58 p.m. at this Foot Locker. Breaking glass and leaving sneakers strewn on the ground. More instances of looting happened in quick succession. First, this Lululemon store left ransacked, picked over merchandise scattered all over the floor. Free iPhones! Minutes later, looters were seen barging into this apple store.
13: Oh my God, all these iPhones!
12: And others broke into this liquor store. Everybody in this city should be angry. Everybody that, that goes to these businesses should be angry. Upwards of nearly 100 people were involved in the looting and at least 15 people were arrested. We made arrests and we will continue to make arrests. The looting came on the heels of peaceful protests against the judge's decision to dismiss all charges against Philadelphia police officer Mark Dial, who shot and killed Eddie Irizarry during a brief traffic stop last month. Police Commissioner John Stanford said he believes the looters were not motivated by the dial case. This had nothing to do with the protest. What we had tonight was a bunch of criminal opportunists take advantage of a situation. Now here on Walnut Street, Poppy, cars are moving again. We've seen runners, folks going to workout classes. Uh, things are looking a little bit more back to normal here, even as stores like this Apple store behind me continue to clean up after last night. Poppy? Danny Freeman, pretty
2: extraordinary to see that play out. Thank you for the reporting.
4: We want to turn to some breaking news just into CNN. North Korea has decided to, quote, expel U.S. Army Private Travis King. Remember, he crossed into the north from South Korea during a tour of the joint security area in July. North Korea claimed that King has, quote, confessed that he illegally intruded into the territory of the DPRK as he harbored ill feelings against inhumane maltreatment and racial discrimination within the U.S. Army and was disillusioned about the unequal U.S. society. North Korea first acknowledged King's existence back in August, CNN cannot confirm whether these are King's own words, at least as they were described by the North Koreans. It is unclear from the KCNA report where, when and how King would be expelled. Our reporters are on this story right now. We're going to have much more on this as we get more information over the course of the next couple of hours.
2: We'll bring you that as we get it. Meantime to politics, the second Republican debate is tonight. We'll break down the candidates' strategies as they try to separate themselves from the pack and from the elephant not in
4: the room. Plus, what Cassidy Hutchinson, the former top aide to Trump chief of staff Mark Meadows, says about her former boss now.
13: I see that picture and I, I feel sorry for him in some ways because he had a lot of opportunities to do the right thing. And to come forward, you know, he's a man that has a family. More CNN this morning to come after the break. This podcast is
0: supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com
4: slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or
0: sleepnumber.com.
4: We are following this breaking news just into CNN. North Korean state media has decided, says North Korea has decided to, quote, expel U.S. Army Private Travis King. You'll remember he crossed into the North from South Korea during a tour of the joint security area in July. Now, it is unclear from the KCNA report where, when and how King would be expelled. Joining us now from Seoul, CNN's Paula Hancock. Paula, there has been a lot of question about what would happen here. North Korea not even acknowledging that King was there until about a month after he crossed over. What do we know at this moment?
14: Well, Phil, what we know is from state-run media at this point, so obviously we don't have any uh, other confirmation from Travis King himself, but they have said that they have carried out an investigation into what they called the illegal intrusion uh, of their country. They claim that Travis King confessed to having crossed in illegally and also that uh, he harbored ill feeling against inhumane treatment and racial discrimination in the united states which is why he decided uh, to run across the, uh, the the border in within the dmz between North and South Korea back in mid-July. Now, of course, we have no way of independently confirming uh, these comments. This is uh, what state-run media is saying, but they say that he believed it was an unequal US society, which is why he decided to cross into the country. Now, what we know at this point is they have said that they have decided to, uh, to expel him. We don't know exactly when that will be or where that will be. From past experience and, and precedence, uh, they are generally expelled through China. So they could. Uh, he could well be uh, flown to Beijing, for example, uh, and then flown on from there. We simply don't have that information at this point. This is all that state-run media uh, is giving us. It does come on the eve of an important Korean holiday. It is Korean Thanksgiving that, uh, that starts uh, in a day or two, a significant uh, calendar time uh, of the year. And uh, what we know from just last month... Uh, August, in fact, when North Korea finally admitted that Travis King uh, had crossed in uh, to the country illegally, uh, was that, uh, that that he had admitted that, that he had done this voluntarily. And that is what we heard from the South Korean side as well. And eyewitnesses that were within this private tour group up at the DMZ that say he simply ran for it, ran across the border tried to get into the building on the North Korean side. The door was locked, so ran round to the back and was then bundled into a car with North Korean guards. So what we know today is that he will be expelled. What we're waiting to find out is exactly how, where and when.
2: Rare um, to see an expulsion like this?
14: Not really. This does happen. Uh, And what we did here back in August, uh, which some experts I spoke to uh, pointed to was the fact that north korea said that that he had mentioned he wanted to either stay in north korea or be uh, sent to a third country now the fact that they gave the option of this third country suggested they didn't necessarily want to hold on to him uh, now the overwhelming feeling is that they will have debriefed him fully he is a us service member after all uh, and could have useful information for them at least in their eyes uh, but uh, yeah that, that that's the latest we know poppy okay. Thank you for the reporting on the breaking news, Paula. We appreciate
2: it. Now to politics here in the U.S. Former Trump White House aide Cassidy Hutchinson warning yesterday that Donald Trump will not have any guardrails, she says, if he wins a second term in office as a top aide to then White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows. She had a front row seat to the former president's efforts to overturn the results of the 2020 election.
4: Now, Hutchinson's new book paints an even more chaotic picture of the end of the Trump administration than previously known. She then sat down for an extended interview with CNN's Jake Tapper to talk all about her new revelations, American democracy, and the Republican Party.
13: To me, it is sad that we're in this place as a country where we are looking at somebody who has ha- executed this horrible assault on our democracy, and we are continuing to give this person a platform. That's not what we should stand for as Americans, and I think that Donald Trump is the most grave threat that we ha- will face to our do- to- faced our democracy in our lifetime and potentially in American history, especially in the the Trump administration and in 2020, every day was a hair on fire day. We were swimming to stay afloat, but most of us were drowning. The counts that Donald Trump is currently facing, he is facing counts of obstructing the constitution. To me, that is disqualifying. Donald Trump should be disqualified for being the president of, of the United States. To me, that's not a question. I see someone that didn't have to be in this position you know, I, I, I see that picture and I, I feel sorry for him in some ways because he had a lot of opportunities to do the right thing and to come forward. You know, he's a man that has a family.
4: Here with us now, former Deputy White House Press Secretary under President Trump, Sarah Matthews. Errol Lewis is back with us, also Axios political reporter, Hans Nichols. Guys, welcome to the table. Sarah, I want to start with that last point because that stuck out to me. Um, Mark Meadows is not an idiot. He's quite savvy as an operator in Washington, D.C., and I understand what Cass is saying about the family, and of course you should have empathy for somebody and their family and their personal situation, but do you think he didn't know what was going on here?
15: No, um, he knew exactly what was going on. And he has much said it, I feel like, when he's talking about the Georgia case. He said something to the extent of, well, he was scared that the president would yell at him. So he was carrying out the president's marching orders out of fear because he wanted to stay on Donald Trump's good side. And I do think that Mark Meadows knows better. He is a smart um, operator, as you said. He's politically savvy. And he did know that um, the election was not stolen. He knew that because multiple people had told him of that. There's never been a single shred of evidence produced Bill Barr, the attorney general, told the president and Mark Meadows that uh, there was no evidence of this. And so he could have avoided this whole situation. And it really does pain me, honestly, to see that interview of Cassidy because they were so close. And I witnessed that relationship firsthand at the White House. And so I know that it hurts her to see him in this situation as well.
2: What's the impact of her writing this, telling all of these things to Jake? We heard her testimony before the January 6th committee. We saw her depositions.
10: I, look, I think she is a sort of a beacon for the future of the Republican Party. This is what your future looks like. You know, both her age, her can voice. Can look
2: like, if, her... if you so choose as a party. Well, I mean,
10: you know, look, they, they can turn their backs on the Cassidy Hutchinson's of the world. She said in the interview that she has not changed her registration. She right. remains a Republican. Mm-hmm. But demographically, that's who the future belongs to. It belongs to the young people who want to sort of give up uh, uh, their time and their careers and and go into public service, and we want to find as many people like that as possible. And she is saying very clearly, in a very poised manner, that she has loyalty, she has value commitments that the Republican Party has turned its back on. If they're smart, whoever the future of the Republican Party is going to be, the future leaders, the current leaders, uh, they will try to sort of take a couple of steps in her direction instead of slavishly charging down this path of trying to relitigate the 2020 election.
4: Hans, I think what's striking, and I think this goes to Errol's point, is you look at the people around the former president, people like Sarah, people like Cassidy, uh, cabinet officials, senior advisors, legal counsel, across the board, people who work with him inside that building, for the most part, say the same thing that Cassidy Hutchinson is saying. Right. And yet the actual elected officials inside the Republican Party made a decision, made a decision in the weeks after January 6th that we're going to stick with them.
16: Well, they re-upped that decision in the debate, right, when they had the hand raise. Uh, I don't have an answer for that other than the fact that they are reading their party and they might be reading their party in a different way than Errol was reading. And it's interesting to listen to Cassie and talk about, yes, I still consider myself a Republican, You and I know dozens of people like this that are of a younger generation or even older generation, sort of Paul Ryan-type Republicans. None of them seem terribly optimistic about their ability to fight and win for control of their party and take it in a different direction. And I think we heard that from, it wasn't so much resignation, but it came close to it from Cassidy Hutchinson. And that's what will be interesting on the debate tonight. Now, I don't suspect Cassidy Hutchinson is going to be a question tonight on the debate. There are a lot of important questions we just saw with the news from uh, North Korea Foreign policy can come in at any moment. It's out of the Reagan Center. Uh, there'll be important big questions there. But I don't suspect that we'll really see any of those announced down to seven on the stage sort of throw Donald Trump, and really, aside from Chris Christie, really have the conversation that I think a lot of us at this table want to have here, which is, when is the Republican Party going to have this fight? But it doesn't seem like it's going to be tonight. Or are they even going to have a yeah. fight?
2: Um, Errol, I want to turn people's attention to something that may not get a lot of headlines, but it really matters. The Supreme Court yesterday wrist-slapped this Republican-led effort in Alabama again for a second time to essentially cut out what needed to be a second-majority black voting district in the state, which matters a lot for the makeup of the next House. Explain what the Supreme Court did, a conservative court, and why it matters. Yeah,
10: no, it's really important. Look, 27% of Alabama is black. They have one seat out of seven uh, that is reliably electing African Americans to the Congress. Uh, Even this conservative Supreme Court has said you've gone too far, you can't do this. There is something left of the Voting Rights Act of of 1965, and you've got to do this again. The state has defiantly, you know, they said, okay, we'll we'll redraw it, and they redrew it and essentially handed in the same maps. Um, That level of defiance of a Supreme Court directive is very unusual. Uh, A special master has been appointed. Uh, They're going to sort of continue this fight, but what it tells us is 10 years after the Supreme Court struck down some of the provisions of the Voting Rights Act, that were intended to prevent this kind of nonsense down at the state level, you're playing whack-a-mole all over the country. They have really sort of emboldened a lot of these state legislatures to do exactly what they've done, which Mm -hmm. is try to dilute black voting strength. And in a Congress that is so closely divided, with only a few seats between Democratic or Republican control,
2: all of this really matters. This will likely mean, as Joan Biskupic reported yesterday, one more Democratic seat in the House.
10: Yes. And then you have to move on to, you know, to Georgia and Virginia sure. and to all kinds of other places where there are these these rules changes, lines drawn, voter ID laws and other kinds of uh, voter dilution strategies that are going to be uh, finding
4: their way through the courts. Sir, I want to ask you, Hans front ran me, as he always did when we were colleagues at Bloomberg, um, on the debate. When you watch tonight, I think it's easy and I'm probably guilty of this of saying, I don't know that this necessarily matters in the grand scheme of things, given where Trump stands in this race
15: right now. What are
4: you watching for and what do you think could break through?
15: So obviously, Trump isn't going to be there. And so that does provide um, someone on stage an opportunity to have a breakout moment. I think in the first debate, uh, I think Nikki Haley had the breakout moment and she gave the most uh, substantive policy answers. Vivek Ramaswamy also got a lot of headlines because I think people were going after him. And I expect that to continue on tonight's uh, debate stage. And he's an easy target because you can Uh, draw a clear contrast with him. People can say, look how inexperienced he is. I have experience on X, Y, Z. But I think that in the first debate, Nikki really shined and her polling numbers have gone up. And we saw in a recent NBC poll that in a head-to-head matchup between her and Joe Biden, She beats Biden in a general election by five points. So I would expect her to be a target tonight on stage as well. And I'm curious if she can keep that momentum up. But it's going to be hard because until the field narrows, I don't think anyone can effectively challenge Donald Trump for the nomination.
16: Yeah. I don't have anything to say that, right? I mean, look at the, look at the delta. Look at the gap between. I would gap. you in. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> well, look, here's my, here's my solution to that, is that. The one thing about Mark Meadows, to go back to that conversation, is he didn't know what a white claw was. That's an incredible, like, so here's the, here's the suggestion for the debate. And that is that you just have everyone put white claws out there and see if they actually know <laughs> Nice, and could, nice, could, nice could, free branding. Is, is yeah, right, this right, right, like yeah, yeah, EOS, right. This is like a thing. Like, a, I, maybe a maybe, a maybe thing. I had one this morning. Uh, uh, look, the delta matters. And the polling matters here, and that you just see, and normally you don't look at polls this far out, but look at how stuck the race is. And whether or not Trump's at 57 or 48, he still has just this gap that's going to be impossible to close. And all of the, you know, I don't want to say undercard, but the lower tiered candidates, they're all fighting within, you know, neck and neck. We're talking about a Mm -hmm. difference between, you know, your seven or nine points. Mm -hmm. Awfully tough to hang your campaign on, like, I moved from seven to nine, so...
2: I think you just brought Hans here to side with you in the Avalon ongoing
4: yeah. bet. Is I'm that correct? I'm building momentum yeah. in Notice a bet that. that I hope gets me a really expensive steak dinner. Is that the in New York City? You we haven't reading? decided yet. Avalon knows this. Thank town. you. I
2: don't. Nice oh, to have you, Sarah, Come Sarah, Sarah,
4: Thanks for having us. Appreciate thank you, everyone. it, everyone. Well, highwoods writers are returning to work for the first time in nearly five months. We'll bring you the latest on what this means for your winter binge watching. That's next.
2: One of America's most powerful CEOs with a stark warning on inflation, interest rates that's ahead. The president of the Minneapolis Federal Reserve, Neil Kashkari, in the studio with us.
4: Well, brand new this morning. It's official. Hollywood writers are now allowed to return to work. The strike officially ended. As of 3 a.m. Eastern this morning, after the board of the Writers Guild of America unanimously voted to give its members permission to go back to work. But union members could still refuse to ratify the tentative agreement reached with studios and streaming services when they vote next week. CNN's Natasha Chen joins us live from Natasha. Uh, Natasha, we're starting to get a little bit more insight into the deal itself. What's the latest state of play as writers can now go back to work?
17: Well, Phil, the writers I've spoken to are very excited about this. There's a general mood of optimism here. They feel like there was something in this deal for everyone. So let's walk through what's in it. Basically, we start with better pay. 5% more this year, followed by 4% next year, 3.5% the year after that. Better benefits, which includes a slight increase in health fund contribution and writers who are on the same script no longer have to share the cap on that pension and health benefit uh, contribution. This was a big sticking point. Artificial intelligence. There are some protections against the studio's use of that. A studio can't use AI to write or rewrite literary material. They have to disclose to a writer if they're handing them anything that's been done with AI. And a writer can choose to use AI with consent from the company, but can't be forced to use it. Uh, Another big sticking point, streaming bonuses uh, and residuals. This is going to be based on the success of the content and how many people view it on stream. Platforms. In some cases, on the largest platforms with really big budget productions, this could mean an extra $9,000 bonus on a half hour episode, up to more than $40,000 bonus on a huge feature movie. Uh, And here's a writer we spoke to on the picket line yesterday talking just about this.
18: Streaming has just restructured our whole uh, payment. for our writing and just needing some parameters around that some rules around how we as writers are getting paid for our content the things that we create in our heads and netflix puts on streaming there is it's a new model and so we just need to make sure people are being fairly compensated for that that's what's most important to me
17: she also talked about how not a whole lot can get restarted without the actors also on production sets so they need all of this industry needs for the actors to also get back to the table with studios sag after released a tweet yesterday uh, saying that at this time they have no confirmed dates uh, scheduled to meet with the studios uh, but when they have that confirmed they will inform you they said um, unless you hear from them they said it's hearsay so a lot of people very optimistic but still Hanging on for those actors to also negotiate with studios, Phil.
4: We'll keep an eye on that. Natasha Chen for us. Thank you.
2: All right. So the war on inflation could get worse before it gets better. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon warning interest rates could go up, maybe way up, to cool inflation. If that happens, it will be painful. This is what he said in an interview. Quote, I'm not sure if the world is prepared for 7%. I ask people in business, are you prepared for something like 7% the worst case is 7% with stagflation. Since early last year, the Fed has rapidly raised interest rates from near zero to just over 5%. Last week, Fed officials released projections that pencil in just one more rate hike this year before rate cuts maybe next year, and the Fed's moves are starting to hit Americans' finances. Think about this. Buying a home or a car right now, much harder. According to Mark Zandi from Moody's, when you mix higher borrowing costs with high prices, the Wall Street Journal puts it this way, that Zandi estimates that the typical American household would need to use 42 weeks of income just to buy a new car. As of August, up from 33 weeks a year ago, the National Association of Realtors calculates the typical American family cannot afford to buy a median-priced home. Joining us now, one of the 12 Fed officials with a vote this year on interest rates, president of the Minneapolis Fed, Neil Kashkari. Morning.
19: Morning, Poppy. I was struck
2: seeing Jamie Dimon. He chooses his words carefully on things like this. You have said you see a 40% chance of quote, meaningful higher rates. Is 7% possible enough that Americans should prepare for it?
19: You know, it's hard to prepare for it. I would say for everybody it is, for businesses and for individuals. one of the big surprises for us over this year is how resilient the economy has been. As you said, we've raised interest rates a lot over the past couple of years, and yet the economy has continued to be quite strong. And American households have continued to spend more than we expected. So that's good news that there's that resilience in the economy. But if our interest rate increases are not slowing the economy the way that we expect, then there is that risk that we might have to go higher than we that currently are. That much higher? Realize.
2: That's two percent higher.
19: You know, it's hard to know. It's hard to know.
2: But that sounds like Americans at home should prepare for it. I mean, Jamie invoked Warren Buffett's famous saying, when the tide goes out, that's when you know, you know, who's been swimming naked. And he equates 2% more to the tide going out. And then if Americans don't prepare, they are stuck.
19: Yeah, it's, you know, but again, though, it is tough. It's like, what do you say to a family to say, well, how should you change your behavior if you think that higher interest rates may be coming? Can you
2: speak to that? What Uh, should they do?
19: It's don't take on more debt right now. You know, would be a big thing. Credit card interest rates have gone up quite a bit, and if you have bigger balances, then it's going to be more and more painful to service those debts. And to the extent possible, have longer-term. Uh, bar, you know, if you have loans, longer-term home loans are better, mm-hmm. less sensitive than shorter-term home loans. It's, it's a tough thing to deal with.
2: Is it one thing we're not even factoring in yet, sort of the quadruple whammy here? We already have an auto shutdown. It looks like we're going to have a government shutdown. Student loan repayments, that's a ton of money. That starts again October 1st. And oil prices, gas is really high. Those are four things that aren't even factored in yet.
19: Yeah, well, the oil prices, you know, people are already fa- feeling it on the pump because gas prices. And that that affects families all across the country right away. So that is a real factor. The other ones are also real as well. When we've analyzed these in the past, I mean, I'm not hoping for a government shutdown. I want to see the government stay open. Historically, they've been quite short, so they have not seen a big effect in the macro economy. Um, Same thing with the student loans. If you just analyze the student loan payments, it can be very painful for an individual family to deal with if you look at it across the scale of the U.S. economy, Mm -hmm. it doesn't seem like by itself, it'll have a big effect on the U.S. economy. But if all four happen at the same time, then all of a sudden that starts really adding up.
2: But that that's really likely that all four are going to happen at the same time. So it, can you translate what that's going to mean for folks? Well,
19: again, it's going to go back to the auto, shut, uh, the auto strikes that have happened in the past typically have been short-lived. If it goes on for a long period of time, that's going to have a much bigger imprint. Same mm-hmm. thing with the government shutdown. So at the Fed, we have to take all of these uh, scenarios and try to figure out what would we do if these various scenarios happen. And we run different analyses all the time to look at it. If they
2: happen, is it possible that
19: to achieve a
2: soft landing. You've said 60% chance of a soft landing. But you also pointed out inflation proves more entrenched than expected. Is it possible that you guys have to say, our target can't be 2% inflation anymore? We've got to say 3%, for example. So no?
19: No. no. We're committed to 2% inflation. We can achieve 2% inflation. The question is, if these, we call these things shocks. If these downside scenarios hit the U.S. economy, we might then have to do less with our monetary policy to bring inflation back down to two percent because the government shutdown or the auto strike may slow the economy for us. I'm not hoping for that. Uh, but that those are there's an interaction. It there. could
2: have that effect that you guys need on. OK, I have to end on this. If sure. yes, short shutdowns are normally short, but the last one we saw, 34 days, longest in history, it shaved off two percent of the U.S. economy for the first part of 2019. If this goes on, if it shuts down and goes on for more than two weeks, you guys at the Fed do not have some of the data you need. You don't have uh, the government-produced data on the labor market or the inflation. So how on earth do you side, decide what to do with interest rates if you literally don't have the data?
19: Well, we look at a wide range of data. We want all the data we can get. We do count on the government data. But we also look at private sector forecasts and private sector GDP, payroll data, for example. So we will be able to make our decisions. I, I I'm more worried about the individual families who won't get the checks, the, the Social Security checks, all of the other things that Americans count on. That's, to me, a much bigger factor of consequence
4: of a government shutdown.
2: OK. Neil Kashkari, president of the Minneapolis Fed. Thanks very much. Thank
19: you very much. Okay, good, good
2: to see
4: time. you. Got it. Phil. Well, an arrest warrant is out for the murder of a young tech CEO in Baltimore. What police are saying about her alleged killer and why it remains so dangerous. Oh.
2: Also, this breaking news just into CNN. North Korea says it has decided to expel U.S. Army Private Travis King, who had crossed into the north from South Korea in July. Those breaking details ahead. More CNN This Morning to come after the break.
1: The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. Celebrities of all kinds are speaking publicly about their therapeutic trips, so to speak. It turns out there is a burgeoning industry ready to serve the new influx of people who find themselves turning away from traditional mental health therapy. The gap between what we know and what we don't about psychedelic therapy. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app.
4: Well, this morning, a manhunt is underway in Baltimore for a convicted sex offender now wanted on multiple charges, including first degree murder. After Tech CEO Pavel LaPera was found dead from blunt force trauma in a downtown apartment on Monday. Police say they're looking for 32 year old Jason Dean Billingsley, who's considered armed and dangerous.
20: Every single police officer in Baltimore City, the state of Maryland, as well as the U.S. Marshals are looking for you. We will find you.
4: CNN's Omar Jimenez joins us now, and Omar, Baltimore police haven't said how they identify Billingsley as the suspect. What do we know at this point?
8: Yeah, at this point, they just say that he's the one that they need to get right now. They consider him extremely dangerous at this point. He's suspected of killing 26-year-old uh, Baltimore Tech CEO, La Pair. She was just named to the Forbes 30 under 30 list for social impact, in part for her company, Ecomap, but he's suspected uh, as we understand, of killing LaPair She was initially reported missing Monday morning, but then later, hours later, was found dead by police due to blunt force trauma. And this is something, this is someone, the 32-year-old Jason Billingsley, that has a history. He pleaded guilty to assaults back in 2009 and 2011, and then pleaded guilty to a first-degree sex offense in 2015, was sentenced to 30 years in prison but then was released in October 2022. We're still confirming exactly as to why, but it still seemed to catch some Baltimore officials by surprise when this happened. And it's part of why police say that he is not only armed and dangerous, but has the capacity to act. Take a listen.
20: Be aware of your surroundings at all time. This individual will kill and he will rape. He will do anything he can Um, to cause harm. So please be aware of your surroundings. Now,
8: Baltimore police also believe he's a suspect in another case, but haven't elaborated on why. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott uh, did say that Pavel LaPierre was someone he got to know over the years and said that she was someone that would never hesitate to help. But of course, this is a case that has shaken the Baltimore community, not just those in the tech scene as well.
4: All right. Omar Jimenez, keep us posted as you learn more. Thank you. Of course. Seeing CNN This Morning continues right now. This is CNN Breaking News.
2: We begin this hour with breaking news just into CNN. North Korean state-run media reporting it has decided to expel U.S. Army Private Travis King after completing their investigation into his crossing into the north from South Korea. That was during a tour of the joint security area in July. North Korea claims that King, quote, confessed that he illegally intruded into the territory of the DPRK as he harbored ill feelings against inhumane maltreatment and racial discrimination within the United States Army and was disillusioned about the unequal U.S. society.
4: It is unclear from the KCNA report where, when, or how King would be expelled. Joining us now from Seoul, CNN international correspondent Paula Hancock and former CIA North Korea analyst and White House official Sumi Terry joins us from New York. Paul, I want to start with you. You've been following this throughout the course of the last couple of months. What's the latest? What do we actually know here?
14: Well, Phil, everything we know so far has come from North Korea itself, from state-run media. We haven't heard at all from Travis King since he crossed the MDL, the military demarcation line, back in mid-July, whilst on a private tour of the DMZ, a civilian tour. Uh, So we do have to wait and see whether or not the confession they speak of uh, is, in fact, accurate. But as you say, they say that he confessed illegally uh, entering North Korea. They say they carried out an investigation uh, over the past couple of months and that investigation is now over and they have decided uh, to expel him. And they've said really what they said last month when they had the first acknowledgement uh, that Travis King had even gone into their country, saying uh, that he was wanting to get away from an un equal US society. Now, back in August, they had said that he was uh, looking at the opportunity to either stay in North Korea or potentially look for a third country. Now, at the time, that was seen as a positive note, the fact that they were even entertaining the thought there may be a third country, suggesting they may not want to have wanted uh, to keep hold of him for too long. Now, very few uh, assume that he would not have been heavily debriefed. He is, after all, a U.S. soldier, maybe not privy to uh, an awful lot of, uh, of, of secrets, but certainly any information North Korea may find useful, they would have debriefed him. So this all happened back in July, mid-July. He had spent 50 days uh, in a facility in South Korea. He had faced assault charges, uh, so he had been in a South Korean facility. He was supposed to be flown back to the United States, but when he was at the airport, he managed to get out of the airport, go on the, uh, the tour, and then run across the border.
2: Sumi, how does this play out? Paula mentioned last hour when the news broke, perhaps China, do we know where he would go? And also, is an expulsion different from a release?
21: Well, so this is very concerning to me uh, because, okay, first he's being at least expelled, so he's not going to be staying in, the, uh, in North Korea. But the fact that North Korea said he could go to a third country, or he didn't say he's come, returning home, right? And if it's China, that's one thing. But what about Russia? Kim Jong-un just met with Putin in Vladivostok, and there is all kinds of illicit deals going on with North Korea supplying uh, Russia with ammunition and artillery shells that Putin needs for his war efforts in Ukraine, and Russia supplying North Korea with sensitive technology that North Korea needs to advance its missile nuclear program. And I'm just wondering if this is also part of a a discussion between Kim Jong-un and Putin. So unless Travis King comes home to the United States, this is not necessarily a better development. I need to find out where he's going first. Um, So this is a little bit concerning to me.
4: Sumi, to that point, I think it's a little bit full circle here. When he first crossed, I think we were on talking about this, and you had a very kind of level-headed, sober analysis that said exactly what had happened. (laughs) You, You said that was likely what was the case, and it ended up being the case. You mentioned kind of the potential for a new geopolitical issue here, depending on where he would be expelled to. But why would the North Koreans want to expel him? Why wouldn't they want to hold him uh, for their own leverage?
21: Well, he was extensively debriefed. So I'm sure they found out whatever they need to find out. And then, you know, it's it's matter of it. It does cost some to keep somebody for a lifetime. Right. Right. so, it, I mean, there's a financial cost, there's a logistically, you need to have somebody always staying with him. There's a language barrier. So after finding out maybe that Travis was not of, well, they've got everything they needed out of him. Now then maybe this is part of the better bargain with Putin than Biden administration because North Korea and US were at complete an impasse. They don't want some sort of trying to get back to talks. They've made it very, very clear that they don't want to sit down with Washington anytime soon to talk about denuclearization or anything else. So we are at an impasse. So maybe there's a better bargain to be had with Putin. This is a new kind of geopolitical environment. Uh, So I am very concerned until we find out exactly where he's going, Mm -hmm. it might not be a better place. Sumi, just very quickly, how much uh,
2: weight should we put to this statement North Korea
21: attributes to him? Zero. Zero. He, he is reading exactly what North Koreans have written down for him. Yeah. OK, thank you
2: very much for your expertise, both Sumi and Paula.
4: Well, happening today, former President Trump heading to Michigan, where instead of debating his Republican rivals tonight, he'll be looking to upstage them with his own primetime speech. He'll be speaking at a non-union plant outside of Detroit with an audience of around 500 former or current union members. But he can't escape his legal perils. In a new ruling, a New York judge says Trump and his adult sons are liable for fraud and that they bear responsibility for inflating the value of Trump's assets for years. The judge citing multiple instances in which Trump's companies claimed their properties were worth far more than their assessed values, sometimes to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars, adding that the defendant's claims none of that mattered legally came from a, quote, fantasy world.
2: As a result the judge canceled the Trump org's business certificates that's what they need to operate that could potentially end Trump's control over some of his key New York properties like Trump Tower Donald Trump's attorney called this ruling a quote miscarriage of justice and said the family is going to appeal but this is a big win for the New York Attorney General's civil case against Trump which alleges that Trump inflated his net worth by as much as 2.2 billion dollars in a single year David K Johnson is with us he's an investigative reporter You'll remember him as one of the first to see Trump's tax returns. He's also the author of The Big Cheat, How Donald Trump Fleeced America and Enriched Himself and His Family. That book title, David, is very apropos to what we're looking at right now. Can you explain for people watching at home why, why this actually matters, that if he did these things, you know, wh- why does that give him an uneven playing field with basically everyone else?
22: Well, by claiming that his assets were worth two, four, ten, and more times than that, their actual value, Trump received benefits in the form of bank loan terms and other matters. And the judge, in a very carefully written 35-page opinion, walks through this, shows that Trump had asserted that, oh, nobody pays any attention to my financial statements. Everybody knows that they're nonsense, and said, sorry, the world doesn't work that way in the real world. And Trump then argued, "Well, I don't have to make any restitution." And the judge said, "This is not about restitution. It's about disgorgement. What I'll be teaching my law students uh, in the spring is this ex- uh, analog to it, analogy to it. Uh, you take $100 from the till at your employer at when it closes. You go to the racetrack. You win a thousand. You put the $100 back. Not only did you commit a crime, even though the business was closed, while well, the money was gone." but you have to disgorge the $900 gain from your winning bet. And that's what's happening here. And the judge has given the Trump companies the death penalty. Donald Trump, as of right now, is no longer a businessman
4: in New York. David, just to kind of zero in on some of the specific examples, I think it's important to actually detail some of this. You know, One in particular, the, the Trump filing at 30,000 square feet for the Trump Tower penthouse value. The actual size was actually 10,996 square feet. Uh, the overvaluation was estimated to be between 113 and $207 million. Uh, that's not small money here. That's just one example. I guess when you listen to the Trump's lawyers or their defense here, it's, this is how things operated, right? I didn't believe that this was any different than how anybody else at my level was operating. How egregious is something like that in terms of the world in which he was operating in business wise?
22: Well, Trump is not the only person to inflate his assets, but the judge points out, we're not talking about minor discrepancies, an extra 10% or something. We're talking about massive discrepancies. And Trump has been doing this for the whole 35 years that I have been covering him. Uh, He just makes it up. And that's why the judge not only held that all of Trump's business licenses are canceled, but he fined five of the Trump lawyers, $7,500 each, for making up false arguments, for stating the law said things that it said the opposite and other misconduct on Donald's behalf.
2: This is just finally a ruling against Trump and his sons, not Ivanka Trump, who was involved in business. Can you explain to people why?
22: Ivanka got herself removed from this case. So it's Donald, his two older sons, Alan Weiselberg, and I think two other employees of the Trump Organization, uh, and in New York, you cannot operate a business except as a sole proprietor, like my book writing business, um, uh, unless you have a license from the state. And the judge has canceled all of those licenses, all of which fall under the umbrella of the Trump organization. This is a corporate death penalty.
4: When you you've written so much, not just about kind of the in the weeds uh, financial dynamics, but also the man himself. Uh, what do you think this means, the death penalty that you're laying out here? What would this mean to somebody like Trump?
22: Well, Donald potentially can end up with nothing but his presidential and television uh, show pensions. Uh, uh, Eventually, after he appeals, which he will, and of course, for his whole life, he'll insist he did nothing wrong because Donald has said in his whole life he has never done a single thing that requires seeking forgiveness. Um, Those assets will be seized. They will be sold. And clearly, they will not bring the highest prices. Uh, Creditors... The fines due to the state and taxes will be paid first. And if there's anything left, Donald will get that money. But since he inflated his assets, it's not like much, if
4: anything, Phil.
2: David K. Johnson, thank you for your expertise this
4: morning. Thank you. Well, the migrant crisis overwhelming cities across America and CNN has teams on the ground in Mexico and New York to tell you the stories of the people making the dangerous journey to the border.
2: Also new overnight, this disturbing footage out of Philadelphia shows hundreds of people looting stores across the city. We'll bring you those details and how police are responding ahead. More CNN this morning to come after the break.
4: Well, it's a story only CNN could tell. We have two teams covering two of the flashpoints of the ongoing border crisis. In Mexico, our crews capturing the dire conditions asylum seekers face as they try to reach the border. And here in New York City, we're documenting what the backlog of migrants looks like once they reach the city. CNN senior national correspondent David Culver is in Tapachula, Mexico. And CNN senior crime and justice correspondent Shimon Procopez is at the Roosevelt Hotel in New York City. David, first to you, what are you seeing there on the ground?
3: Phil, you you get a sense of this being a constant flow, just an influx of migrants that is 24-7. I mean, it's a little after 5 o'clock in the morning here. This is just one of the gathering points here in Tapachula. And and you can just notice behind me, you've got dozens, if not hundreds, if not well into the thousands, because it stretches several blocks of folks who are camping out at all hours. They're here waiting to be processed for either transit documents or asylum claims here in Mexico, but not to stay here, rather to continue on to the U.S., As you touch down in southern Mexico, be ready to share the road with migrants. We spot group after group, marching north. Many of those who just illegally crossed into Mexico head here, this outdoor park turned migration processing center.
23: He wants
3: to go legally into the U.S. So he wants to go through this process here, get his documentation, and then get to the northern border eventually cross. Last year, Mexico says some 77,000 migrants applied for asylum in Mexico. More than half of them do it in Tapachula. This year, on track to be nearly double that, a record high.
21: No. No.
3: To get to Tapachula, it's an hour's drive or a day's walk from the Suchiate River. Guatemala on one side, Mexico on the other. And in the shadows of the official crossing between the two countries, an armada of rafts casually faring group after group. No, primero. and so, while wow, they're they're having their first child, she's five months pregnant. Days earlier they crossed the treacherous jungle terrain of the Darien Gap connecting Colombia and Panama. Oh, my God, I mean, they're just describing passing through the Darien Gap, and they said several people who had already passed away, a lot of kids, they saw the remains, and he says children who were abandoned. Those images haunt Susana Aleman. Describing the journey she made with her four young kids but even amidst her tear-filled pain, little ones lighten the load. Got <laughs> a little shampoo left in his hand. His 12-year-old sister, Sofia, helping clean it out, as Joandri then turns the questions on me. <laughs> oh,
12: she
3: says I'm older than her dad. Curiosity brings their siblings and cousins, and Joandri takes over the mic, telling me why they left Venezuela. Six years old. He even speaks of the Venezuelan economy as bad. But as they share, disturbing memories surface. Muchos
21: muertos. Yo vi
11: uno.
24: Una mujer tenía el pelo amarillo y esta parte tenía todo todo lleno
3: de talking about these are children, mind you having gone through the very and the bodies that is all he's describing, seeing a blonde woman. Sophia's pain as she remembers saying goodbye to loved ones.
23: <laughs> Her
3: little heartbreaking, the friendships that she's lost. Yeah, hearing it from kids, Bob and Phil, man, it's crushing. Uh, they been through so much already, and and they've got a lot more to go. I mean, another 1,000-plus miles to get to what is the destination for the vast majority of them, and that is, of course, the U.S.
2: Told in a way uh, only you can, David Culver, that was remarkable. Thank you for being on this story and staying on it. And Shimon, to you now, you've also been at the center of all of this, covering what happens as those migrants move north. You're joining us from New York City. As I understand it, a bus of migrants just pulled up behind you moments ago, Shimon. Is that right? Yeah,
25: yeah, Pop. Yeah, Poppy, that's right. In just the last few minutes, a bus pulled up. But this morning, in the last 30 minutes or so since we've been here, we've seen three buses pull up here. Uh, most of the migrants who were getting off the buses were families with multiple kids, little, little kids coming here from Texas. You know, for the weeks that they traveled through the border to get to Texas, they then spent two days on buses getting here. And we saw over a hundred of them this morning going inside here behind me in what is the city's intake center. And we've spent a couple of days here uh, in the last few weeks sort of documenting what some of the families have been going through and why they came here.
26: We're gonna offer you food and water right away. A hot meal can go a long way.
25: Dr. Ted Long from New York City's Health and Hospital is proud of the operation the city has established here.
20: Everything that we've developed in New York City is to meet the needs that were not met for people coming to us from Texas so far. So here, whether it's screening for communicable disease, if you're a pregnant woman giving you prenatal care, or screening for you for the very important mental health conditions you might have like depression, we do it all here because it's not done before here.
25: It really catches your eye to see so many kids running through the halls of the Roosevelt Hotel, almost like a playground. So many kids. The city says 20,000 migrant children have come through New York so far. Why did you come to America? Lady Casa is 23 years old and escaping violence in Ecuador. She says she came here for her daughter Mia. Who was born with a physical disability? How are you feeling? She says she's happy that she's here now and she's scared to go back to Ecuador. I'm afraid that my daughter will die there if she can't get medical attention. I need a place to stay. I think they're going to help me.
27: I'm sorry. Good luck, okay?
25: It's good news for Lady and Maya they're being moved out of the intake center to a shelter. As this group leaves, another is already shuffling in behind them. 116,000 have come to New York City since the spring of 2022, city officials say. And it's a reminder that the flow of migrants doesn't stop. The burden on New York City is too much, quite honestly. We are past our breaking point. Among those just arriving, Luis Flores, we met him outside, and his wife, Irma Linda Morales. They now have seats inside. It's a dream come true, he says. It took him two and a half months to come to this country through the border. Uh, and now he's just hoping to give his family a, a better life. Uh, and they've been sitting here now for several days, waiting for the next steps and the next process. And this is, this is your wife, yes? 38 hey, years, you've been married. How, how are you doing? Hermalinda tells us it was their dream to come to the United States, and she doesn't want to lose her husband now that they've finally made it. As we leave, Luis speaks directly into our camera. I just want to work, he says. These are the hands of a worker. And so that's the big thing here, families wanting work. Fathers, mothers, who have all their kids here. I mean, there's some 20,000 kids that have been through the system. And Poppy, you can look, Poppy and Phil, you can look behind me, you're seeing all these kids. They're going to school. I mean, this is their temporary home here at the Roosevelt Hotel. Some of them have been here for several weeks. But what the city has done is that most of the kids here, they've tried to enroll them in schools. They want to give them some semblance of a normal life. And the hope is for many of them, that eventually for many of the parents here, that they can get jobs. That's a big problem here right now.
4: Yeah, Shimon, to that point, you make clear it's temporary. You show that very striking moment, direct the camera at the end of your piece about the individual wants to work. What does happen next long-term with these people?
26: So
25: what happens basically is they need to file for asylum. Many of them don't even realize that that is something they need to do. And that's gonna take time. You know, normally it should take somewhere around 180 days or so. But what the city is seeing that it is taking much longer. And without those asylum paperwork, without that paperwork, without some of the other sort of bureaucracy that these families need to go through, they can't get jobs. Uh, They can't legally work. And so the city's trying to expedite some of that. They're trying to get the uh, federal government to come in and help expedite some of that. But that is the key here. For all of these people here, Jobs. They need money. They need to work. They're not asking for handouts. Mm -hmm. They truly all say they want to work.
2: Shimon, thank you for that. Stay with us. David, we talk about every day we see in the headlines of the newspapers the number of border crossings. Is that really a good indicator, though, of the extent and the reality of the crisis, do you think?
3: I think that can be a huge distraction in all of this, Poppy, because you're right. We see it going down for several weeks or months at a time. And then suddenly there's a spike and people think there's a new surge. The reality here south of the U.S. border, and this is why we wanted to be at another border, that with Guatemala from Mexico, is because this shows it is a constant flow, right? It has not slowed. There are not ups and downs necessarily. It is just 24-7 folks coming in from this migrant trail and continuing their way up. And that's why you have crowds like this behind me. And it's interesting hearing what Shimon was saying, meeting with a lot of those folks who have made it into the U.S., is you have those individuals who are reaching out to their friends and family, many of them right here behind me in Dapatula, and saying, hey, we made it. And despite the struggles that they're still facing, it's better than what these folks are either coming from or feel like they have around them here in Mexico. So for them, it's motivation to continue forward.
13: Yeah.
2: Well, David Culver joining us from Tepatula, Mexico. Shimon Perker right here in New York City where many of those migrants end up. Thank you for the reporting to you both.
4: Well, it's debate night in America with seven Republicans set to take the stage tonight, missing once again the GOP frontrunner.
2: And a landmark lawsuit against Amazon, the Federal Trade Commission, and 17 states accusing the company of having monopoly over online retail. How Amazon responds, ahead.
4: Well, tonight, seven Republican candidates will spar on stage in their pursuit of the party's 2024 nomination. But if you've been paying attention over the last 24 hours, there's a pretty clear reality setting in that a general election may not include any of those candidates at all. Instead, it may come down to a Biden-Trump rematch. Now, President Biden previewed a major speech he's planning for Thursday at a fundraiser last night, saying for President Trump and his allies are, quote, determined to destroy democracy. And some of those allies, with Trump's explicit backing, are moving several steps closer to careening Congress into a government shutdown on Capitol Hill.
2: Meanwhile, Biden became the first sitting president to join union workers on the picket line. That was yesterday in their ongoing auto strike. Now, Trump will try his hand with union voters at the campaign stop in Michigan and a primetime set of remarks tonight. It's a state he won in 2016, but then he lost there to Biden in 2020. He will be speaking at a non-union plant to, to around 500 former or current union members, a group that historically does vote Democratic. Kristen Holmes, live in Clinton Township, Michigan, with more. Obviously. You know, Republicans, the party, the strategists see something here in polling. Politico had an interesting piece on it uh, for Republicans to grab in the union vote.
6: Yeah, that's right. Look, we know when Donald Trump arrives today, he is not going to have the same warm welcome from union leadership that we saw uh, President Biden have yesterday. As you mentioned, unions are typically Democratic. They typically vote Democratic. However, they do believe that there is an ability, this they being the Trump campaign, to essentially drive a wedge between union leadership and the rank and file members, some of whom will be here tonight. We are expecting, as you said, former and current union members, including members of the United Auto Workers, as well as their families here. And essentially, as you mentioned, when it comes to Michigan, 2016, it was working class voters and the state of Michigan that helped propel Trump to the White House. 2020, it was working-class voters in Michigan that helped propel Biden to the White House. And now you're seeing Trump trying to get some of those votes back. It's not going to be easy this time around, particularly given all of the criticism that he has gotten from these union leaders who say that his administration uh, was pro-business, anti-labor, anti-union, but they still believe that it's possible. And, And Poppy and Phil, I do want to note one thing. It is not just Trump who is looking ahead to the general. You mentioned that fundraiser. The Biden people are out with a new ad today that is airing in Michigan ahead of Trump's visit. Take a listen.
7: He says he stands with auto workers, but as president, Donald Trump passed tax breaks for his rich friends while automakers shuttered their plants and Michigan lost manufacturing jobs. Joe Biden said he'd stand up for workers and he's delivering, passing laws that are increasing wages and creating good paying jobs. Manufacturing is coming back to Michigan.
6: And one thing is clear, you know, you mentioned that Republicans see an opportunity here. Well, obviously Democrats also see that there is potential for these union voters, these working class voters, to vote Republican. They're putting out this ad specifically in Michigan to show Biden's record, to show Trump's record as well. And the one other thing I want to point out here is that one of the things we are expecting to hear from Donald Trump tonight is this pitch against electric vehicles, which of course has been a cornerstone of Biden's presidency. They say, the Trump campaign says that this is going to take away jobs, move them to China, and it's likely why they chose this facility here, this non-union facility. It is a facility that the president said in an interview yesterday uh, that if electric vehicles were to take over now that this facility, his facility, would go out of business.
4: All right, Kristen Holmes, big night, potent talking point. At least that's what the campaign thinks. Thanks very much.
2: All right, let's go to Kyung La. She is live at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library for tonight's debate. Good morning. Uh, some of the rivals, Trump's rivals, he's not going to be there, but they are calling him out for that, right?
24: Uh, yep, he is not going to be here again. Poppy. And lest you think that this is just going to be a repeat of debate one, what we're hearing from these campaigns signaling is yes, they are taking it to Donald Trump. That is the hope that they are doing it, testing out some of those lines before this debate, signaling as well to us that they are going to use some of those lines on the debate stage, but also trying to take swipes at each other as they all fight to be the Trump alternative. We are hearing from Tim Scott's campaign that he will be much more aggressive in. Vivek Ramaswamy telling CNN that what he is planning to do is to take some of those policy and personality disagreements that he has with Donald Trump, that he is going to put that on the debate stage, as well as Nikki Haley, who's been testing out some of those anti-Trump lines, calling him before this debate thin-skinned and weak in the knees. And we also heard last night two other candidates saying that they are not happy that Trump is not
16: going to be here. Take a listen. I think it's interesting and he's not willing to stand on that stage. Uh, I think he owes it to all the voters to show up, defend his record, articulate what he would do uh, going forward. He's running in 2024 on a lot of the same promises he ran on in 2016 and didn't deliver on.
28: The Donald Trump today is different uh, than the Donald Trump of 2016, and you bet. I think he ought to be on that debate stage. He ought to be engaging all of us that are vying for this nomination.
24: And what all of these campaigns are signaling to us is that they understand this is really their big chance, a big opportunity to speak directly to Republican primary voters. And they also are speaking to those fundraisers, Phil and Poppy. This is an opportunity to keep that cash coming to keep their campaigns going. Okay.
2: Kyung, thank you. It's going to be a fascinating night there, that's for sure. So this morning, Senator Bob Menendez will make his first court appearance. It will happen in New York on these federal charges stemming from alleged bribery payments found in his home. Gold bars, hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash, a luxury car among them.
4: All that driving a growing number of lawmakers who have called for him to resign. The count is at 26, about half the Senate Democratic caucus. Menendez, however, remaining defiant. You you Will you run for re-election? Right now I'm here, here to do the, the work in of the people of New Jersey. Will you, in you, you in run for re-election, that. sir? As I said, I'm here to do the work of the people of New Jersey. Why won't you resign, sir? Senator because Senator- I'm
20: innocent. What? What's wrong with you
4: guys? CNN's Karis Kanell is live outside the federal courthouse in New York City. Uh, the Cory Booker moment and, and joining that group of 20 plus was kind of a big, big moment yesterday. But in terms of what we're going to see today. Menendez, his wife, two other New Jersey businessmen will appear in court. What do we expect?
1: Yeah, good morning, guys. So we're expecting the senator and his wife to arrive um, soon this morning to face these charges. They'll surrender uh, and technically be arrested as they're going to head into court and go before the judge. So it will be Senator Menendez, his wife, Nadine, and two New Jersey businessmen who are accused of paying the senator hundreds of thousands of dollars of bribes in the form of gold bars, cash, Mercedes-benz convertible mortgage payments and a no or low show job for his wife and in exchange the senator is accused of taking steps to benefit the men and to provide some aid to Egypt through his role as the chairman or then chairman of the Senate Finance Committee uh, now this appearance will they will all appear in court before a judge uh, we do expect them to be arraigned on the charges and the fifth the the fifth person who is charged in this case one another New Jersey businessman whileel Hanna appeared in court yesterday. He entered a plea of not guilty, and he was released on $5 million bail. So additional details like that we will learn once this court hearing wraps up. Uh, But as you say, the senator facing growing calls for his resignation remains defiant, saying he is not going anywhere, and he expects to be exonerated of all charges when this is said and done. Phil, Poppy? Karis Scannell, thank you for the reporting. We'll watch closely as this unfolds today.
4: Well, NASA astronaut Frank Rubio just landed back on Earth after becoming the first American to spend a full year in space. The historic moment. That's next.
2: And in the WNBA playoffs, the New York Liberty even up their series with the Connecticut Sun, 84-77 victory for them last night. And they have another reason to celebrate. Superstar Brianna Stewart was named league MVP for the second time in her career. Stewart shared an adorable moment with her two-year-old daughter earlier when Ruby interrupted her acceptance speech.
21: Hey, come here. You want to stand with mommy? To be a role model to you, Ruby, is really what keeps me going. And today, you get to see your mommy win MVP. More
2: CNN This Morning to come after the break. All right, welcome back. So this morning, a crisis is looming over America's families and the U.S. economy. It has been dubbed the childcare cliff. And now we are just three days away from careening over it. This Saturday, billions of dollars from COVID era funding that kept daycares open. It's going to run out. And if Congress does not act to renew that funding, supporters of this aid say it could have catastrophic results for American families and businesses across the country. I lose sleep over it. It's a constant worry.
21: How are you doing this morning?
2: Families under financial pressure and now facing the prospect of another child care crisis. According to a progressive think tank, without new funding, as many as 70,000 childcare programs could close. More than three million children could be at risk of losing access to care. And more than 230,000 jobs could be lost in that sector alone. And parents, especially working moms, could be forced to leave the workforce. So I did have to take a leave of absence. Delisa Ubreu, a single mom of two in Florida, says she had to temporarily leave her job as a recruiter when COVID hit to take care of her children. Now, she says she worries about having to make that choice again. I worry what, what's going to happen to those moms now,
1: specifically the single parents. All the prices were just astronomical. For
2: Alex McGann, mom of two, the cost of childcare forced her husband to leave his job in a Massachusetts classroom to care for their children at a time when educators are in short supply.
21: It did leave a hole in in his school.
1: After running all the numbers and assessing all of our options, we realized that we would probably be losing money if we did send her to, to daycare. Congressional Democrats urging their Republican colleagues
2: to take action and pass a bill that would provide $16 billion in annual funding for the next five years.
24: Access to high-quality child care is essential to our economy. If mamas and daddies can't get care for
2: their babies, they can't go to work. Republican Senator John Kennedy offering sympathy for the issue.
22: You know, being opposed to... Affordable child care is like being opposed to golden retrievers.
2: While also raising the critical question of how to pay for it.
22: Do we raise taxes? Do we just borrow it? We are running big deficits, and deficits do matter. And. The, our spending has contributed to inflation. It's not the only reason.
2: But for the families and child care providers at the edge of the cliff, they say the cost of doing nothing is simply too much.
1: Boarding child care is a luxury that shouldn't be a luxury. It should be a basic right.
2: At the table with us to talk a lot more about it this morning, Reshma Sojani, she's the founder of Girls Who Code and Moms First, a nonprofit that advocates for improved child care benefits and paid leave. She also is a Democrat, ran for Congress back in 2010. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me, Poppy. You're always um, so good at bringing these things to the fore because, by the way, this is all over the papers this morning, and you've been sort of ringing the alarm bells now for months that this was going to end. What happened Saturday? I'm assuming no more funding for this unless something dramatically changes. What does that mean next Monday for families?
18: I mean, it means that three million kids don't have child care. Hundreds of thousands of child care workers are out of a job. Parents who have found childcare, because we have again one out of two Americans live in a city that has no childcare, so you're going to see parents with their childcare bills dramatically increasing, and millions of parents are going to have to choose between feeding their babies and funding their daycare.
4: The there's a lot I want to get to on the issue itself, but the argument that Senator Kennedy mm-hmm. is raising there, I've covered these policy debates on Capitol Hill for years. They're, felt like there was a sea change on these issues at the start of this administration coming out of the pandemic. That has waned, I think, the momentum. It fell out of the legislative proposals that the president put together. The thing I don't understand necessarily is the argument is we are uh, lacking in productivity in the labor force at this moment. This contributes to labor production. This very clearly had direct results when these benefits were put out there. And yet the it costs too much, we can't afford this is by far and away a winning argument on Capitol Hill.
18: Right, because they still see childcare as a personal problem, right? It's a social safety net issue, not an economic issue. Even though two thirds of women are doing caregiving work. Why doesn't that argument connect?
4: Because there's data that backs that up.
18: Because, I mean, and you kind of see this in Senator Kennedy's argument, two thirds of Americans and most legislators still believe that someone should take care, uh, someone should stay at home and take care of the baby. Guess who that is, that's us, right? So we're not prioritizing women's labor market participation. We're not prioritizing families. And the reality is, is you can't be pro-family unless you're pro-care. The United States is still the only industrialized nation that doesn't have paid leave. We're the most wealthiest nation that spends the least amount on childcare because we still think that families got to figure it out by themselves, that it's not an economic issue. And it is. It's like number 13 on Congress's list, Mm -hmm. and it should be number one, right next to AI, right next Mm -hmm. to China.
2: There are people on both sides of the aisle speaking out uh, on this, working on this issue. And on the Democratic side, Congressman Ro Khanna, someone you've worked with a lot alongside Republican Representative Nancy Mace. Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, has said, and I think rightly so, this is a, quote, textbook example of a broken market. Absolutely. Has the Biden administration, you're a Democrat, but have they done enough on this issue, do you believe? Have Democrats writ large?
18: Look, I mean, I think the president introduced, you know, a proposal to create a ceiling, you know, on the cost that Americans spend on childcare. They've given a lot of voice to this. The problem is Congress is broken. The men in Washington have decided that it's not a priority and they simply don't have the will to get anything done. And at Moms First, look, I think that we need literally an army of moms, you know, that are putting pressure on Washington to say, you know, this is a priority for families and we need you to prioritize it. Well, we need it.
2: an army of dads, too. Oh, absolutely. And
18: dads want this, too. Yeah. This, this isn't this isn't a gender issue. Right. right. This is a family issue. But the reality is, is that two-thirds of the caregiving work is done by women. You saw this, you know, on the clip. The person who's having to make the choice between their job and their kids are us. Yeah. And so our voices at this moment are critical. We appreciate it. No, Phil just- somehow does both. In, in
7: his <laughs> home.
18: Well,
4: My wife is a rock star. Oh. You know what? We need, we need you to march indeed. to
18: Washington and tell Senator Kennedy exactly where our dollars need to be spent.
4: I know we have to go, but I think the interesting thing is yeah. there are conservative proposals, policy proposals. Yeah. There, there, there seem to be a sea change and an understanding of the importance of this. And how do you reconcile them is still an open question that nobody's figured out. I, I mean, out. listen, I just, the
18: movement I, that we're building is bipartisan. This isn't yeah. a political issue, right? Moms First. Moms First is a bipartisan movement, yeah. right? We had, you know, thousands of Republican mothers send letters to their Republican Congress people saying, I need you to do something. Mm-hmm. So, so again, I think the, 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 the necessity right now is to make this, like again, a priority. It, it's, and in many ways, I feel like these issues how, is how climate was to, you know, 20 years ago. Mm. They're right? like, oh, we all should recycle. And now mm. we realize that it's fundamental to our economic innovation and our
2: success as a, as a country. And it's the same thing on care issues. You've been Best leading the charge on this,
4: yeah. yeah we really appreciate it. Thank, Thank you very much. Thank you.
2: Okay, a new big lawsuit against Amazon from the FTC and the states. We'll tell you what it means.
4: And NASA astronaut Frank Rubio just returned to Earth after becoming the first American to spend a full year in space. The historic moment, we've got it. Next.
28: Touchdown. Touchdown confirmed.
4: Just moments ago, NASA astronaut Frank Rubio landed back on Earth after breaking the record, becoming the first American to spend more than a year in space. Now, he initially planned to spend just six months in space, but his Russian ride fell through, forcing him to remain at the International Space Station. CNN's Christian Fisher joins us now from Washington, D.C. Uh, Christian, he's being carried out of the capsule. He's supposed to be carried out of the capsule. Why?
29: Well, this is standard procedure for any astronaut, but especially an astronaut like Frank Rubio, who has just become the first American to spend a full year in space. Because, think about it, this is the first time in 371 days that his body has been exposed to the forces of gravity. He has not put any weight on his legs or had to really lift anything with any real weight in well over a year. And so, you know, even astronauts who spend about a week in space, they have a hard time walking after they return to Earth. He's spent more than a year in space. So he's having uh, probably a very tough time getting acclimated to the forces of gravity. And so you see them right there extracting him from the Soyuz capsule, which landed uh, in Kazakhstan just a few minutes ago. Um, He's literally carried out and then placed in a reclining chair where he can try to regain his sense of equilibrium. Mm. But Phil, the other big thing that he's dealing with is this violent re-entry into the earth's atmosphere in addition to the just the forces of gravity he's also just pulled four or five g's on this re-entry into earth everybody describes a soyuz landing as being particularly violent in fact the previous record holder phil mark ness astronaut mark vande uh, the previous record holder for this uh the single duration space flight He said his advice to Rubio before landing was, keep your mouth shut on landing so that you don't bite off your tongue. Uh, That's how violent it is. So I think it's understandable that Rubio might be uh, carried out of the spacecraft right about now. Wow. Well.
4: That's good advice.
29: Yes, that's
2: great advice. Kristen Fisher, welcome home to him. And now he gets to see his family first time in a year. Thank you. Yeah, he has four kids. You bet. Thanks.
4: the Federal Trade Commission and 17 states launching a landmark lawsuit against America's largest e-commerce company, Amazon. The suit accuses Amazon of having a monopoly over much of the online retail environment and using its market size and power to manipulate third-party sellers and raise prices for consumers.
29: People are paying higher prices, right? Consumers are paying more than they otherwise would. Small businesses are having to pay a 50 percent Amazon tax right now. And so ultimately, the complaint is seeking to restore the lost promise of competition. Greater competition will mean lower prices, better quality, better selection uh, and greater innovation. And that's ultimately what this case is about. The case
2: also alleges Amazon unfairly promotes its own platforms and services, harming third-party sellers who rely on Amazon to sell their goods. It's a claim that has followed Amazon for years, starting with a paper written by the woman you just heard from. She's now the FTC chair, Lena Kahn, but she wrote about this back in 2017 as a law student. Here's how she explained it to us in 2019.
11: When you have a situation when a single company is effectively able to set the terms of the marketplace, that's a situation where I think we should worry about the market not being competitive.
2: That same year, I asked the then-CEO of Amazon Worldwide Consumer, Jeff Wilkie, about all these criticisms of Amazon's marketplace dominance. Here's what he said. Does Amazon give priority to and prioritize its private label in search?
20: We prioritize the
8: things
30: that customers want. For
2: in a recent hearing on Capitol Hill, an Amazon attorney went a step further and categorically denied the claim.
30: We do not
7: use their individual data when we're making decisions to launch private brands. Our incentive is to help the seller succeed because we rely on them.
2: So when Wilkie, the Amazon executive, left the company in 2021, yesterday, Lena Khan told CNN the FTC has not ruled out holding Amazon executives personally liable the company's alleged conduct if they find sufficient evidence.
4: Amazon says the government's action could end up causing the very problems it hopes to solve, and that, quote, if the FTC gets its way, the result would be fewer products to choose from, higher prices, slower deliveries for c- consumers, and reduced options for small businesses, the opposite of what antitrust law is designed to do. This is not the FTC's only lawsuit against Amazon. It's also suing the company and several of its executives, alleging a scheme to enroll customers into their prime memberships. Without knowing. All right, you have been focused on this all uh,
2: morning. I just find it all really morning. interesting.
4: You've obviously covered a Did lot of this. Did I email this. you enough about it? I, I <laughs> love those emails. Uh, I learn a lot from them. What's your take? Because oh. this is a huge moment, not just for the FTC, the Biden administration, but also Lena Khan.
2: Well, this has been her fight yes. since she was a law student. She's the first one who raised the question to, I think, this country about what is a monopoly? How do we define it? Do we have to change the way we define a monopoly from the Microsoft days to, to what Amazon is now? My big question out of this is it's important to track 17 state attorneys general are on board. But what's it going to mean for people at home and the people who sell on Amazon? I think that's the real question is if they prevail in this lawsuit, is it just going to be fines and penalties or will actual changes happen that benefit them? And Amazon and their statement is important, too, saying if you succeed in what you're trying to do, it's just going to cost people more. So it's groundbreaking. We'll see where it goes. It's
4: groundbreaking. There are several suits that the FTC has brought, um, several defeats or problems that they've had with some of them. This is going to set a lot of precedent Mm -hmm. uh, for the years to come. Very important. We'll watch it. See you in this morning. Continues right now.
2: Morning, everyone. Let's start with five things to know for this Wednesday, September 27th. And we begin with this breaking news out of North Korea. That country has decided to expel U.S. Army Private Travis King who had crossed into the north from South Korea in July.
4: And it's debate night in America. Seven Republican candidates will take the stage in California tonight to make their case to voters.
2: One person will not be on that stage, Donald Trump. Instead, he's going to give a primetime speech at a non-union auto parts manufacturer in Detroit as the United Auto Workers' strike against the Big Three continues into day 13.
4: And with just three days and 16 hours left, the Senate has unveiled a bipartisan plan to avoid the looming government shutdown, but there is no guarantee that it will be able to pass the House. Speaker Kevin McCarthy is still busy trying to get his own members in line.
2: In Philadelphia, more than a dozen people this morning under arrest after a big group of looters ransacked an Apple store, a Lululemon and a footlocker. This hour of CNN this morning starts now. We begin with the breaking news out of North Korea. Their state-run media reporting the country has decided to expel U.S. Army Private Travis King after completing their investigation into his crossing into the North from South Korea. This was during a tour of the Joint Security Area in July. Here's what North Korea claims that King said. "Quote." He confessed that he illegally intruded into the territory of the DPRK as he harbored ill feeling against inhumane maltreatment and racial discrimination within the United States Army and was disillusioned about the unequal U.S. society.
4: Now, it is unclear from the KCNA report where, when and how King would be expelled. Joining us now from the State Department, CNN chief national security correspondent Alex Marquardt. Uh, Alex, I know you guys have been asking U.S. officials what they think, what they know. What do you make of this announcement? Should we believe it?
31: Well, Phil, as you know well, everything from the regime of Kim Jong-un needs to be taken with a a huge grain of salt. This announcement by uh, the North Korean regime really did come out of the blue. This is not something that we are expecting. As you noted, we have been asking the Biden administration, uh, the State Department, the White House, the Pentagon, what they know right now. But everything we know uh, is really coming from the North Korean side and and coming from their state-run media, which as you noted, uh, says that they are expelling Private Travis King uh, after carrying out an investigation. They say that during this investigation that uh, was carried out since he was detained back in July, uh, that he did confess to illegally crossing uh, into, the, uh, into the North, into North Korea, because of that ill treatment. Now, let's just remind our viewers uh, the extraordinary uh, situation and, and, and story that really unfolded back in July how King Found Himself in North Korea. He was on a, uh, on a tour uh, of the DMZ when he, he bolted uh, across the DMZ, according to the U.S. military, willfully and without authorization. Now that area of the DMZ uh, is highly secured, of course, with forces uh, from both, both the North Korean and South Korean sides. It's called the Joint Security Area. He had been, he was being sent back to the United States, in fact, Poppy and Phil, because uh, of uh, an assault that he carried out while he was based in South Korea. In fact, he had served some 50 days in South Korean detention. Uh, He was then taken to the airport by US military officials. They wanted him to get on that plane and go home to face disciplinary procedures. But instead, as soon as they let him go, he left. He then joined this tour the next day um, at the DMZ, and that's when he crossed into uh, North Korea. Now, there were uh, immediate questions uh, about his condition, where he was being held. There was very little communication, uh, if any, between the North Korean and the American sides. Of course, uh, relations uh, are are really at an all-time low when it comes to uh, the nuclear talks and concerns over, over North Korea's nuclear program. Now, certainly, if confirmed, the release uh, of Travis King will be welcome news. This would not be a long, drawn-out uh, saga in the way that we've seen with, with uh, North Korea in the past and, and with other countries, in fact. But, of course, Poppy and Phil, major questions still remain about whether a deal was struck. Uh, was, there, was there some kind of behind-the-scenes negotiation? And, of course, the condition uh, of uh, Private King. Uh, and then, as you noted at the top, Phil, we, we still don't know how he would be released, uh, whether he would be flown somewhere, taken back across the DMZ into South Korea. So this morning, uh, some, some major questions still remain as we get this news out of North Korea. Poppy, Phil?
2: Okay, Alex, thank you very much. We know you'll stay on this throughout the day. Also developing this morning, police in Philadelphia are investigating what caused a very large crowd of looters to hit stores across the city's downtown last night. Police say the group of juveniles, about 100 of them, moved through the city. They targeted these high-end retail stores for clothing and sneakers, wine and liquor, even pharmacies. A news helicopter captured police chasing suspects in the street. We're told they made somewhere between 15 to 20 arrests last night.
4: A similar flash mob, smash and grabs in other cities like Los Angeles and San Francisco have been seen recently. But it's hard to say exactly what's driving these crimes or this crime specifically and whether the scenes last night in Philly were part of a trend or just an isolated incident. A retail crime in the city is up 34 percent this year versus last, but violent crime has mostly been down in Philadelphia over the same period. To help us figure out what may be going on here, let's bring in CNN chief law enforcement and intelligence analyst John Miller. Um, The video is jarring, uh, and I think it it tracks with things we've seen in other cities around the country, but why is this happening, and is it connected in some way?
30: Well, what we saw um, in New York when we had the two nights of looting after the George Floyd protests were very similar, which is we had protesters marching in protesters The looters came in caravans of cars. They were working in sophisticated communications networks. They had lookouts on scooters. They weren't there to protest. They were there to steal. They were talking about, you know, we're here to get paid. Um, In Philadelphia, you see the protests they had yesterday. These weren't the protesters. These were young young kids, uh, teenagers, early 20s. Same thing, caravans of vehicles, um, a plan to go hit specific stores and get specific goods. They were able to kind of fly under the protest radar, maybe as part of it. But that's, according to the police commissioner of Philadelphia, not what they were there for.
2: Um, Okay, I know this is the issue in California. I don't know if it's the law in in Philly. And they also showed Minneapolis where this has been happening in California. If it's under a thousand dollars worth of goods taken, it's a misdemeanor. And so there are some who argue that by having that law in place, that just doesn't put a stop to this. Is that the case in all these cities? Is that part of this?
30: I think it is. And, you know, the litmus test there is where is this happening? And you're seeing this kind of, uh, you know, looting happening. I mean, uh, shoplifting and organized retail theft happen in uh, places like New York, Los Angeles, Philadelphia. Um, If you look at where Target closed nine stores yesterday, four stores in San Francisco, stores in Seattle, stores in Portland, stores in New York. Um, These are places where bail reform laws, criminal justice reforms have taken the inside of a jail cell out of the equation. So shoplifting is a crime where a judge can't set bail. Think about this. In New York City, there are just over 300 people who have, between them, 4,000 arrests. 70% of them are not in jail. And they account for 30% of all shoplifting in New York. This is actually their job. They go out to steal every day. And that has gone up significantly because they know getting put in jail is not in the equation any longer because of the laws that say it's a no bail offense and DA's policies are, they don't want people in custody for what they call nonviolent crimes. Can I I ask you about you mentioned
4: Target and it has been fascinating to watch how retailers have operated over the course of the last year plus. Not that I would ever be skeptical of corporate messaging <laughs> on anything having covered the business community, but there's some sense that this also could be a way of kind of covering up, blaming crime, blaming shoplifting to cover up maybe some of the issues that these companies have themselves. Do you feel like the connection is really that concrete, that direct?
30: So this has been a big debate in the retail shopping industry where some stories have been saying it's being overplayed. Um, I think... You know there's a couple of categories one is these corporations measure shrink which is all goods that are lost damaged broken not accounted for in inventory um, what part of that is made up by theft the national retail federation shows that um, the part of it covered by theft is actually rising interestingly they did a survey of stores the retail federation uh, in 22 that said 81 uh, percent of their store associates feel That the people stealing are becoming more violent and aggressive when Mm. confronted and 54 percent of them feel that this bail reform where they have shoplifters telling them there's nothing you can do and i'm I'm not going to jail is a factor there so is it going up as dramatically as some of these stories portray if you look at it nationally that's a harder statistic to grapple with but if you look at where it's going up significantly it's going up in cities uh, where you have these policies and people who realize this is just like shopping without money.
2: And some of that bail reform here in New York has been scaled back in just, just the last year, uh, well, but some of it's still still there.
30: They've introduced some legislation that says if you are arrested for a crime while you're out on the other crime and you haven't you know, had a hearing where that's been adjudicated. Mm-hmm. So there is that window where if you get caught multiple times, They can set bail, but in large measure, they're not doing it.
2: John, turning to your fantastic and important piece on CNN.com, this is about Senator Menendez and the questions raised by this indictment. Uh, But it has to do with U.S. secrets and Egypt. Uh, You write, quote, the Senator Menendez case raises major questions for U.S. intelligence. And I think we were talking about this hasn't been covered as much, right? It's been more the accusations of his alleged fraud. But tell us why your big questions here are so important.
30: Well, we were kind of stunned as a medium by the story itself. The senator who's a chairman taking allegedly hundreds of thousands of dollars in cash stuffed in pockets and closets, gold bars, convertible Mercedes. But you have to stop and say, well, all right, who allegedly is the centerpiece of this? And it's an Egyptian-American businessman who's arranging meetings between the senator Egyptian intelligence officials, Egyptian military officials, um, bringing um, meetings where the senator's staff isn't invited, but the senator's wife, who was a longtime friend before the senator ever met her with uh, the the Egyptian businessman. As an intelligence officer, when you look at this, you have to say, wait a minute, where does this middleman come from? How does he meet his wife? Why are they only doing things for the benefit of the Egyptian government? And you asked the key question, are we dealing with a straight up bribery case or is this espionage and spying on the part of a U.S. ally that has large money at stake and other issues?
4: <clears throat> the 39 page indictment is jarring. The trees are the gold bar. The forest is what you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it is huge. And I think it, there's a lot more to come, it seems like, to some degree, in, at least in the allegations. John Miller, that's a great piece. You should Thank be done you. on CNN.com. Thank you.
2: Yeah, it really is. Thanks, John. So Donald Trump's rivals calling, calling him out, I should say, for skipping the Republican debate tonight. Again, the harsh reality is none of the seven candidates who will be on the stage are even close to him in the polling right now. A rematch with President Biden looking more and more likely.
4: Instead of debating, Trump will be trying to upstage Biden in Michigan after Biden's historic visit yesterday when he rallied with auto workers on strike, he became the first sitting U.S. president to join a picket line. Trump is set to give a primetime address at a non-union auto parts plant and a showdown for working class voters. Now, since skipping the first GOP debate, Trump's huge lead over his Republican competition, well, it's only grown.
2: Kyung Law live at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library, the venue for the debate tonight. Good morning to you, Kyung. He will try to steal Trump the spotlight from that stage tonight.
24: Uh, Well, they're all hoping to get a little bit of that shine as, uh, you know, that Trump isn't here. And yes, you're right. They are calling him out. They are trying to take swipes at him. We're certainly hearing from the various campaigns like Tim Scott's campaign, as well as Vivek Ramaswamy, that they are going to bring it up. Be more aggressive or put it out on the debate stage. There are differences with Trump. We've seen Nikki Haley testing out some of those anti-Trump lines in the days leading up to this debate. And just hours before this debate is set to start, two other candidates also took to the airwaves to call out Trump.
16: I think it's interesting and he's not willing to stand on that stage. Uh, I think he owes it to all the voters to show up, defend his record, articulate what he would do uh, going forward. He's running in 2024 on a lot of the same promises he ran on in 2016 and
28: didn't deliver on. The Donald Trump today is different uh, than the Donald Trump of 2016. And you bet. I think he ought to be on that debate stage. He ought to be engaging all of us that are vying for this nomination.
24: Though Trump is not here, this is still expected to be a very important chance for these candidates to talk to millions of Republican primary voters directly, Phil and Poppy. And it's also a way to continue to talk to Republican donors. It is something that they need at this stage to continue their campaigns.
2: Phil, Poppy. Kyung, thank you very much. Joining us from Simi Valley, California, we'll get back to you
4: soon, Phil. Well, Joining us now with more on the impact these debates can actually have, CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton. All right, Harry, there was a debate. What changed from that first debate?
26: Yeah, it was a fantastic debate. A lot of back and forth moments. Let's listen to one of those big moments.
27: Do you lie all you week, want Nikki. to go and defund Israel? This, you want to? Okay, let me address that. China? I'm
28: glad you, you brought want that to go up. And I'm,
27: I'm going to address each of those right now. You this are is
8: the, on, the false he, lie. A professional less politician. There Under you have it. You're watching. So you,
6: the reality America
27: is, less of, you have no me, foreign policy experience, and it shows. And you know what? The, it the shows.
26: Foreign policy- so if we look at Nikki Haley's national poll standing before the first debate, she was at three percent. She's doubled. She's up to six percent now, right? Obviously, Trump still leads the primary by a lot, but doubling your share of the vote is not bad. And if we look at some of the early states, we see that Nikki Haley's support has gone up even more. There, New Hampshire, her support has gone up by seven points. Iowa, her support has gone up by six points. South Carolina, her support's gone up by four points. And although Trump is still still well ahead, the fact is Nikki Haley's now fighting with Ron DeSantis and a lot of the other candidates for second place in these early states.
4: So at least one candidate benefited. What about Trump himself? Is there anything these guys can do, the seven on stage can do to ding his very high level of support right now?
26: Yeah, let's take a look back at a moment from the 2015 debate to give you an idea what these candidates might be able to do. Donald Trump said the following about you quote look at that face would anyone vote for that can you imagine that the face of our next president Mr. Trump later said he was talking about your persona not your appearance please feel free to respond what you think about his persona
27: (laughs) you know it's interesting to me Mr. Trump said that he heard Mr. Bush very clearly and what Mr. Bush said I think women all over this country heard very clearly what Mr. Trump said.
26: An actual moment where Donald Trump was shown to be human, that is something you could attack him and actually shift his support. This is back in 2016. Look at this, pre-second debate, Donald Trump was at 32%. Then he dropped to 24% after that second debate. Carly Fiorina, 3% to 15%. So going after Donald Trump actually can work, We'll see if any of the candidates tonight are actually willing to do so. That's the big question, Harry Anton. Thanks, buddy. Appreciate Thank you. it. Be
4: sure to tune in tonight for post-debate analysis hosted by Anderson Cooper and our own Dana, Dana Bash at 11 p.m. Eastern on CNN. Well, President Biden calling out House Speaker Kevin McCarthy over the looming shutdown. He also went after former President Trump, saying MAGA Republicans are, quote, determined to destroy this democracy. We'll have a member of his cabinet respond to everything that's going on. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg joins us live next.
2: More CNN this morning to come after the break. This morning, Congress inching closer to a shutdown, just three days left to pass a spending deal. Senate brokering a bipartisan bill to keep the government open. This would be until mid November, but it includes $6.2 billion for aid for Ukraine, making it Pretty much dead on arrival, it looks like, in the House. That is where embattled Speaker Kevin McCarthy is still trying to wrangle his party, vowing to put a short-term spending bill on the floor on Friday. Lauren Fox with us from Washington with
11: more. Good morning. Does this go anywhere? Any chance? Well, the expectation is that if it can pass out of the United States Senate, it will then be up to Kevin McCarthy to decide what comes next. But Speaker McCarthy made some news last night in saying that he plans on Friday to bring a short-term spending bill that includes border security funding and other measures to the floor of the House, trying to force some of his hardline members to essentially make a decision. Do you stand for something or not? The problem with that strategy and the gamble for the speaker is the reality that there are a number of hardliners who say they will never get to yes on a short-term spending bill, arguing it just kicks the can down the road. Then the question becomes what happens if the Senate has sent him something? Does he amend it? Does he change it? What he said yesterday was that he planned to try and include border security on anything the Senate sends over. But another reminder that... Will he have the votes? And I think that that is the essential question right now and why everyone is sort of asking, would House Speaker Kevin McCarthy ever get to a place where he would just put the senate pass bill on the House floor, as we've talked about many times, doing that imperils his future as Speaker. And that is why it is such a difficult calculus right now for the Speaker of the House and why all eyes are on him, despite the fact that the Senate still does have to do a considerable amount of work to get their bill passed through their chamber in a timely manner, given the fact this deadline is Saturday at midnight. Poppy?
2: Warren, thank you for the reporting. Phil?
4: President Biden taking aim at Kevin McCarthy at a campaign fundraiser last night, shaming the House speaker, trying to at least, for not honoring his deal to keep the government open, telling potential donors, quote, it's time for the Republicans in the House of Representatives to start doing their job. Biden warned of the widespread damage that could follow a shutdown before attacking his predecessor, saying, quote, the MAGA Republicans are determined to destroy this democracy. Let's bring in Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, Uh, Mr. Secretary, I want to start with kind of where the president was on the shutdown itself. The White House was just releasing uh, kind of a breakdown, almost state by state breakdown of the effect that this would have a shutdown on air traffic control staffing on their pay. It goes state by state in Florida. You have 6,108 TSA officers, 1,157 air traffic controllers, California, another significant uh, margin as well. The actual impact on the Department of Transportation uh, and the elements of it, what would it be?
20: Well, we can't afford a shutdown right now because of the disruptions that it would cause to transportation. Look at aviation, uh, where we've made enormous progress after the COVID-driven disruptions we saw a year ago. Cancellations are back down to normal after everything we went through last summer. Uh, this summer, they're actually a little bit below where they were before COVID. Uh, but In order to keep that going we've got to be able to hire air traffic controllers this stops that it stops us from training and hiring air traffic controllers gums up a lot of other functions of this department and what that means is over time more shortages more outages more potential disruptions and that's just to take one example out of the transportation space add to that the fact that everybody from tsa officers to air traffic controllers to service members in the united states military would stop getting paid after Saturday. And it, it, it's uh, just look, it's a basic function of Congress to keep the government up and running. We have a deal that Speaker McCarthy made with the president that most Republicans voted for at the time that the deal was actually struck. All we're asking is that they live up to that deal, do their job, and keep the government running.
4: You know, you've know, you made that point several times. It is an accurate point. There was a deal the Speaker and the President signed off on uh, in May and June of this past year. Uh, I asked a member of the House Appropriations Committee, Congressman Tony Gonzalez, about uh, your points related to that deal. I want you to listen to his response because he directed it at you. Take a listen.
32: I hear the comments from the uh, Secretary of Transportation. I I just urge him to focus on the Secretary of Transportation. I've got a lot of my uh, constituents that complain about the delays and flights and and other issues, trains certainly. Uh, There's no doubt that there's a lot of things to blame right now.
20: What's your response to that? That's pretty rich coming from a guy who's prepared to stop uh, air traffic control staffing. Look, we see a repeated pattern here, which is creating a problem or contributing to a problem and then trying to score points off of that same problem. We see it at the border. We see it with transportation. Some of these same Republican congressmen who lined up to try to make a partisan issue out of the flight disruptions that were happening last year because of COVID. Now they're here threatening to get in the way of air traffic controllers getting paid, getting trained, and even putting out proposals that would stop us or delay us from modernizing computer systems. Some of the same Republican congressmen who lined up trying to score political points off the pain of the people who faced the East Palestine train derailment earlier this year are now pushing for cuts that would reduce railroad safety inspections. Matter of fact, we estimate 11,000 miles of track less getting inspected under some of these cuts that House Republicans are proposing. So at a certain point, they need to make clear whether they're serious or whether this is just politics. They have a job to do, and that is to actually run the government keep the American people safe and make sure, whether we're talking about transportation or any other critical function of government, we keep that running in a way that actually addresses these problems. Uh, Mr. Secretary, I want to ask you about uh, the president's visit to Michigan yesterday. It was a historic
4: visit for a sitting president to, to be on the picket line. Um, the UAW still has not endorsed the president, but I want you to listen to what UAW President Sean Fain said.
5: There's still work left to be done. I mean, this EV transition, um, it's important. And uh, you know, we believe in a green economy, but uh, it's got to be a just transition. So, you know, we want these, uh, the, as we move forward in this transition, we want these jobs to uh, uh, have our standards in it. Um, it cannot be a race to the bottom. And that's what these companies are trying to push. They, they, they're all for uh, taking all of our tax dollars, uh, helping finance this transition, But when it comes to taking care of the workers, uh, uh, the companies uh, keep trying to take us backwards. Uh,
4: Mr. Secretary, I want to get to the politics of the electric vehicles debate uh, in a minute. But to start there, you know, that has been the concern and it is a valid concern. The administration has tried to do things through the Treasury Department to backstop a little bit. But that concern in terms of the transition and who would suffer during that transition, uh, what's your response to that?
20: Well, it's absolutely right. Look, I come from South Bend, Indiana. It's the home of UAW Local 5 and UAW Local 9. I saw how the past generation of of, uh, union auto jobs helped build the middle class and, and build communities like the one that I grew up in. Uh, I also saw what happened when uh, uh, when those factories closed. Uh, what the UAW is trying to do right now is to make sure that this next chapter uh, of the auto industry, which let's be very clear, uh, these cars are going electric with or without us. The question is whether the U.S. is going to lead or whether China's going to lead. And we want to make sure that it's not just a U.S.-led EV revolution, but one where the jobs that come with it are good-paying jobs and have that same quality that, that we had generations ago uh, of being jobs that you can build a family and even build a community around. Uh, that, is the,
4: that is the transition that is the push from the administration. But as I noted, it has become a kind of salient political point for Republicans uh, this is what the former vice president and former president had to say about it.
28: Take a listen. I guarantee you that one of the reasons, one of the things that's driving that strike is that, that that Bidenomics and and their green energy electric vehicle agenda is uh, is good for Beijing and bad for Detroit, uh, and and American auto workers know it. The auto workers will not have any jobs, Kristen, because the, all of these cars are going to be made in China.
4: Again, I understand the policy and the issues here, but the politics of this, particularly in this subset, union workers that I think both parties have been fighting over, you ran in 2020, you know how this works. Do you think that it resonates? Do you think it's a problem for the administration?
20: Well, this is another example of creating or contributing to a problem and then trying to play politics with it. Uh, Look, uh, this technology is happening. It is coming. It is coming no matter what. Uh, the problem is that China was able to build an advantage during the Trump administration because the last administration didn't take the steps that were needed in order to make sure that that EV revolution was American-led. We're taking a different approach. We're recognizing that these technologies are coming, that, that there's no going back to the old technology, that you're not going to be the leading economy in the world depending on strategies from the 60s and 70s into the 2020s, 20s, 30s, 40s. 40s and 50s. uh, We've got to make sure that we build the advantage on electric vehicles and have the policies to back that up. Uh, The question is not whether cars are going to become increasingly electric. The question is whether those EVs are going to be made in America or whether they're going to be made in China. We are working to make sure they're made in America. All right. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg, appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Poppy. All
2: right, Phil, thank you. What happens when former President Donald Trump tries to court union workers? We're about to find out.
4: And just into CNN, Senator Bob Menendez arriving at a federal courthouse in Manhattan, where in moments he'll be arraigned on charges related to bribery. Stay with us.
2: at that. Beautiful New York City this morning. Well, just into CNN, also happening in New York City, New Jersey Senator Bob Menendez has arrived at a federal courthouse downtown alongside his wife. This is the embattled senator's first court appearance stemming from federal charges related to bribery. Twenty six of Menendez's fellow Democratic senators have now called on him to resign.
4: We will we'll keep watching that. But also this morning, former President Donald Trump headed to Michigan later today to speak with an audience around 500 former or current union members. At a non union plant outside of Detroit, something UAW President Sean Fain finds, quote, pathetic.
5: I find a pathetic irony that the former president is going to hold a rally for union members at a non union business. And, you know, all you have to do is look at his track record.
4: You know, to that point, Trump made a lot of promises to auto workers during his first campaign. For example, in 2016, he said this in Warren, Michigan.
19: If I'm elected, you won't lose one plant. You'll have plants coming into this country. You're going to have jobs again. You won't lose one plant. I promise you that. I promise you that.
4: That's the promise. In 2018, GM announced it would end production at five facilities in North America, including in Michigan. In
2: 2017, listen to what Trump said.
28: And I was, I was looking at some of those big once incredible job-producing factories. And my wife, Melania, said, what happened? I said, those jobs have left Ohio. They're all coming back.
2: They didn't. Two years later, that Lordstown auto plant shut down. It was one of the largest employers for workers in that entire area. And Auto Workers Union president, Sean Fain, pointed out, during a short strike against GM in 2019, Trump and Republicans largely stayed on the sidelines. All of that will likely come up at the debate tonight that Trump is skipping a chance for the other Republican candidates to try to make their case to voters. So let's talk about what's ahead. CNN chief national affairs analyst, anchor early star Casey Hunt is with us, CNN senior political commentator, former senior advisor to President Obama, David Axelrod. It's great to, to have you guys here. Axe. you have a new uh, op-ed on CNN.com where you quote, of course, Yogi Berra.
4: Got to. You it's got to. It's the most important part of yes. the piece. Yeah. You don't even need to read the rest. Did it's you just, just read the first
28: mean. line, Mattingly? supposed to read all of Axel stuff? <laughs> <laughs> you I read, wrote it for Phil. <laughs> you
2: quote him uh, in describing the shadows that engulfed le- uh, the left Field at Yankee Stadium in the afternoon is saying, quote, it gets late early out there. Why do you invoke that?
28: Because I think it's getting late early for the other Republican candidates for president. You know, some thought that when Donald Trump was indicted the first time that he would lose ground, he gained ground the second, third and fourth time. And he has what is uh, an almost historically large lead. And someone needs to break out here as the principal alternative to Trump. Or you're going to see a repeat of what we saw in 2016, where the opponents divide up uh, some of the vote and he romps to the nomination. You know, Casey, to that point, and this is a space
4: that I know you operate in as well. It, when you talk to donors, they're A, both very aware of this, but B, don't really have an answer here. right? They're, they're, they're using this debate as kind of a decision maker for a lot of them, but have no concept of whether or not they can actually help winnow the field. <coughs> so how does this end?
23: Yeah, no, I mean, as, as David Axelrod knows very well, uh, the donors are a fickle bunch uh, <laughs> and they don't always necessarily um, have the best political judgment, which I know strategists <laughs> like him spend a lot of time thinking about and working on. Are you and think they'd of, it, um, Casey? <laughs> <laughs> uh, But yeah, I mean, these moments are really critical. And the I think David's point is the absolute correct one, because Donald Trump's lead, I mean, some of these polls we saw out over the weekend, it's expanding nationally. It's not shrinking. And, I mean, Phil, you've watched these presidential campaigns as well. Poppy, I know you've covered them too. The reality is that Iowa and New Hampshire do have the power to dramatically change the narrative after those two states vote, it becomes increasingly more difficult. South Carolina can play a role. It did for Joe Biden. It might in the context of Nikki Haley and Tim Scott. We don't know. But if Donald Trump romps in Iowa and romps in New Hampshire, it is going to be nearly impossible for any of these people to stop him. And in order to make a real dent for him, and I think New Hampshire is potentially a place to really look because he's only sitting around 39%. He's well under 50 in New Hampshire. That does suggest that if the field were to consolidate around one person, somebody could come out of there with some actual momentum, with a narrative change, especially because at that point we're going to be, what, a month out from Trump's first major trial, uh, bringing all of that to the forefront. But the challenge, as David says, is somebody's got to break out of the pack here. Now, the debates are an opportunity for that. But the reality is Ron DeSantis is was, in theory, the main challenger. And honestly, he's back on his heels here. Some of those Republicans, other Republicans are going to be looking to try to take him out so that they can take the center of the stage when the third debate uh, rolls around. I think Nikki Haley is really somebody to watch. Had a very strong performance last time. And we saw some polls move a little bit in New Hampshire for her. Uh, Tim Scott has a make or break night, too, I think. David, what do you think?
28: Well, look, I I agree with everything that Casey said. Somebody has to break through. DeSantis, I think, is under tremendous pressure tonight because his whole campaign was predicated on that. He was that guy. He was the alternative. You remember a year ago... Uh, or a little less than a year ago, he was the flavor of the fall, and he was the guy who was going to take Trump, and he's done nothing but lose I mean, ground remember since.
2: Remember the New York Post, the future.
28: Yes, I mean he was the uh, he was the candidate of yeah. the Murdoch Empire, yeah. and he has faltered. So this debate is particularly critical for him Nikki Haley did very well in the last debate and the desperate donors who Casey refers to are now <laughs> shifting their attention to hers maybe she's the one who can do it but you know with success comes greater scrutiny and she's going to get some attention I suspect on that debate stage uh, tonight from some of the opponents as well who are taking note of her progress uh,
4: Casey I make a point of never asking you about Michigan uh, (laughs) because your your preferences on that issue are awful (laughs) Um, generally. (laughs) But I'm fascinated by the the 24 hour period of Biden there at the picket line, Trump there at a non-union shop, but making the play for the same group. Um, How do you think this game's out? Because this is a micro battle and what is becoming a macro rematch.
23: Right. No, I mean, they're both, you know, Biden and Trump are running general election strategies right now. And obviously Trump still does have does have a primary. First of all, go blue. I'm just going to get that out of the way, (laughs) Phil. Can you cover my? But (laughs) look, I um, Republicans also are not used to. I mean, all Democrats are extremely careful to always hold their events at union shops. Right. That's because honestly, this is built into the DNA of the party. And that's still the reality. However, Trump did make pretty unusual inroads with rank and file union voters across what you know we kind of refer to as the blue wall. And that's the wall that put Biden in the White House in 2020 and that cracked in 2016 for Democrats and led Hillary ultimately to lose Hillary Clinton to lose that election. And she, of course, lost in Michigan. And, you know, I actually covered both Democratic and Republican campaigns there. And I was in these union halls and they were. Honestly, a lot of them were Bernie voters first and Trump voters second. Mm-hmm. And that is the phenomenon that, that Trump is trying to continue to exploit. And, you know, he, he does have a better chance than almost any other Republican candidate at doing that. But he does also have a record now, and he didn't in 2016. And you pointed out some of the ways he was inconsistent here. I think there may be, especially in Michigan, some people who remember that. So just to put a button on it, the
2: fact that promise, the jobs are coming back, they did not come back. Back. the Laura plant closed. Yes,
28: videotape is inconvenient, but Trump has managed to elude accountability for so many things, and uh, we'll see if that is held against him. It's a brilliant move on his part to go there tonight and counter-program against the debate, because what he's saying is that race is over, this race is on, and he, he did force Biden's hand. Biden, I think, went to to, de- to, to Detroit in part— because Trump was coming today. So, you know, uh, four indictments, trials ahead, but he's still the guy who's uh, kind of setting the scene.
2: David Axelrod, thank you. Good Casey season. Hunt, thanks so much. Thanks, Be thanks, sure to watch Casey every morning, of course. And check out David's new op-ed we just talked about on CNN.com. Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra. Yogi Berra. President Biden's German Shepherd fighting again. Commander bid another Secret Service agent his 11th bite so far that we know of a former Secret Service officer, retired Secret Service canine Hurricane. See, we get the pup to join us, too. Next. So this developing overnight, CNN has learned the president's dog, Commander, bit another Secret Service agent. This time it happened at the White House on Monday night. It is the 11th known time that the two-year-old German shepherd has bitten someone. It comes after Another of Biden's dog's major was sent away from the White House after at least two biting incidents. Let's talk about this with former Secret Service officer Marshall Mirachi. He worked with the tactical canine unit and is Marshall is with. We should introduce your special guest, obviously, retired Secret Service canine Hurricane, who he takes care of now. Thanks for being here. Um, Eleven times is is a lot. Is this normal?
32: Uh, so this amount of bites, I guess, would not be normal. It is normal for a dog to be acting out in an environment like that at the White House. You know, thousands of people walking around just the sheer size of the place, you know, not getting that comfort feeling that the dog gets. But, yeah, at at this point, you know, I think obviously something needs to be done just to make sure that Secret Service agents as well as, you know, White House staff can you know feel safe going to work and not have to worry about that.
4: I think it's a great point because, one, there's a a significant staff. It's not just Secret Service. There's household staff throughout the course of the West Wing um, and the White House generally. Um, But but what can be done? Because I naturally side with the dog, always, because dogs are amazing. (laughs) But but what is the option here? Because he's been through training before after past incidents.
32: Yep. So it's a great point. It's never the dog's fault, right? So uh, this can definitely be fixed. It just there's... One, you just, a trainer would have to identify the problem. Secret Service has a ton of them. I'm sure they'd they'd love to do it. So the dog's biting out of aggression. Obviously, when you have dogs like German Shepherds, Belgium Malinois, you know, you get them because of their protection and and all the attributes they have. But at the same time, uh, that needs to be harnessed and trained as well. So the aggression is either coming out of fear biting or protection. So a trainer would be able to identify that pretty quickly. And then from there... You know, you would put the dog in situations, this would take weeks, not days, but you'd put the dog in situations that would trigger that similar to the situations that have been happening at the White House, and you would, you know, do on the spot corrections, teach the dog that that is not okay, because at this point, you know, the the dog probably doesn't even know what they're doing is wrong, he's just, you know, acting out, trying to get Mm. attention or protecting whoever's walking them.
2: Well, before you go, I want to hear about the good you have done now, along with your pup, Hurricane Heroes. What is it?
32: Uh, So we started a 501c3 after Hurricane retired that covers medical bills for police, military, uh, law enforcement, canines when they retire. Make sure that they can live happy lives like this guy in retirement. Love that.
4: Um, He also has a great Instagram account that people should check out. um, (laughs) And he's just doing great on cam. Like, I just kind of want to go hang out with him right now. (laughs)
2: Aren't you getting a dog soon? Yeah. Stop. Are your children watching? My,
4: stop.
6: <laughs> my, Marshall, this I is great. Your <laughs> I know you have a puff as
4: well. It's Thank it's you. fantastic. We appreciate it. Thanks, Marshall, so much for your expertise in hurricane. Love you, man. All right. Thank
2: you. Of course. Turning the page here. Within the hour, the suspect in the Gogo Beach murders will be in court. We'll tell you what to expect. That's next.
4: This morning, the suspect in the Gilgo Beach killings is expected to appear in court for a status hearing. The prosecutors and defense attorneys will discuss evidence disclosure and provide updates. Remember, Rex Hewerman was charged with murdering three women whose bodies were found dumped along Gilgo Beach more than a decade ago. He's pleaded not guilty to all charges. CNN's Gene Casares is live for us in Riverhead, New York, outside the courthouse with more. Gene, what might we learn about the evidence considered today?
27: Well, this is a status hearing. And what that means is anything can be brought up because they want to know the status of the case. And you can learn a lot at a hearing like this. Now, here's what we do know. all parties will be present. The court also announced yesterday that Rex Huerman should be present in that courtroom. So he will be transferred from the jail right here to the Suffolk County Courthouse. He hasn't been seen in over a month. We will be able to see his demeanor. Now, I think one thing to look for is that you remember that 12-day search of his home after he was arrested. It was by the Suffolk County Police, also investigators. They took out so many bags, so many boxes of potential evidence. And the district attorney said at the end of the 12 days, there was a lot of work to be done to see if there was any evidentiary value from any of those items. What they're looking for are either trophies that Rex Human could have kept in his home from his victims or also whether the victims had been in the home. Also, remember, the prosecution asked for and received an order that they could take a DNA sample, a buccal swab, out of the defendant's mouth because one of the things that had him arrested was a pizza crust on Fifth Avenue in the trash can outside of his architectural office that they found he could not be excluded from a hair that was found on one of the victims. That buccal swab would be confirmatory. We cannot forget the victims in all of this. He's charged with three counts of first degree and second degree murder. Megan Waterman, Melissa Barthelemy, Amber Costello. Those are the three. There is one other, he is a prime suspect, Marine Baynard Barnes. All were found in 2010 and we'll see if there's any update on him being the prime suspect of that fourth Gilgo Beach victim.
2: Poppy. I'm so glad people look at their faces now and you read their names because this is about justice okay. for them and their families. Gene, thank you. We'll continue to follow it very much. Yeah. Thank you for joining us. Come back tomorrow after we stay up all night and watch, watch this the debate.
4: debate. We'll break it all down and a lot more. Yeah.
2: See you then. CNN New Central is next. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app, Thanks for listening.
0: When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only one thousand five hundred ninety-nine dollars.